The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit www.truerestoration.org forward slash radio and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. This will be our second episode discussing Prashendi Dominici Gregis, an encyclical written by Pope St. Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century. The encyclical focused on the doctrines of the modernists. In our last show, we covered roughly one third of the encyclical. For those following the encyclical at home, we finished at paragraph 20, so we'll start today at paragraph 21. However, it has been some time since the last show, so to refresh listeners' memories, this is what we covered. We covered some background, the nature of St. Pius X, the nature of the man himself, the historical context, his duty to speak out against the gravity of the modernist threat, the fact that the modernists may appear disparate and woolly but have an all-encompassing system, the roles of the modernist, of philosopher, believer, theologian, historian, apologist, critic, and reformer. We talked about vital imminence, the revelation within faith, pantheism, a personal religion, a personal faith, the transfiguration and disfigurement of history or a complete destruction of history in the modernist system. The modernist premise that the religious sentiment of vital imminence is the origin of all religion, a concept which is being condemned. The origin of dogmas for the modernist, intellect's involvement in faith and pondering one's faith, the evolution of dogma, formulas are a constantly moving target for the modernist, they adjust as man adjusts to his environment, culture and surroundings. The modernist is believer, which is totally individually focused, which opens the door to atheism, the religious experience and tradition, life and truth are synonymous, which leads to religious liberty. Catholic charismatic movement grows off this thinking, the separation of science and faith, the practical application of modernism subjects faith to science, which has been condemned by Pius IX and Gregory IX, the modernist dual role of both Catholic and rationalist, the modernist as theologian, the simplicity of his process, i.e. the principle of faith is imminent, that this principle is God, therefore God is imminent in man, which is pantheism, and we finished off with divine permanence which is the idea that the church and sacraments were not founded by Christ himself, as this is forbidden by agnosticism, imminence, evolution, 
and the modernist interpretation of history. So in this show, we will start from paragraph 21. Is there anything you would like to comment upon, my Lord, on that brief summary of the previous show before we get started with paragraph 21? Well, just to review briefly the principles of modernism, and they are two. One is agnosticism, and the other is immanentism. Agnosticism accepts all of the given of rationalism. Rationalism is something that was formulated principally in the 18th century by Immanuel Kant, but by others, and it has deep roots. Uh, which says that the human reason is incapable of knowing God. It says even that human reason is incapable of knowing reality, that it is capable only of knowing its own impressions. Kant called them categories. And that truth, therefore, is subjective in each person because each person has different categories. This philosophy of Immanuel Kant became... The, the standard way of thinking ever since the 18th century, this has caused a relativity or relativism in truth. That something may be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is rationalism, and it rejects all idea of the supernatural, that all we can know are experiences and phenomena of the natural order. We cannot know the supernatural. We don't even know if it exists. That's rationalism. Therefore, everything in the rationalist system must be subjected to the law of rationalism, and that is all sacred scripture, anything divine, has to be reduced to a human level, because if human beings cannot experience it and understand it, then it cannot exist. So that's the one ingredient of modernism. The other is immanentism, and that is that the modernists realize that there is a religious aspect of human beings. They assign this religious aspect of human beings to some sort of God or absolute inside every man, apart from grace or apart from anything supernatural, inside every man, that there is this need for the supernatural. There's this just, it's just a phenomenon that, that people want the supernatural, and that's why man has been always religious. And therefore, they assign all religion to this interior, you might say, revelation that goes on in human beings, this interior religious experience. All religion is an outgrowth of that interior religious experience. Every aspect of religion, whether it's church history, whether it's the sacraments, whether it's history, whether it's how the church defends itself against its enemies, uh, which is known as apologetics, Everything is subject to the guillotine blade of those two principles. And having set down those principles in the early part of the encyclical, now St. Pius X is really just running through the application of it to everything about the Church. You have to add a third element, which he does later on, and that is evolution, that everything is subject to the laws of evolution, so that Uh, this vital imminence, as they call it, or this interior religious experience, evolves with time. So that means the church must constantly evolve as well. And and nothing remains fixed, neither dogma, nor morals, nor liturgy, nor anything else. There is a constant evolution, and everyone must go along with this evolution the way you would proceed on a cruise from one island to the other in the Caribbean. That's just a review of 
the doctrine of modernism. Now we'll see how it applies to the sacraments in paragraph 21. In paragraph 21, he starts talking about the dogmas and the sacraments. And the, the thing that comes out, really, it's just a horribly pragmatic, clinical, cold, cynical view of everything. Perhaps you would like to elaborate, my lord. Yes, again, he says, dogma is born of a sort of impulse or necessity by virtue of which the believer elaborates his thought so as to render it clearer in his own conscience and that of others. So dogma starts inside you. And you talk about your experience to other people, and then other people say, well, I have the same experience or a very similar experience. And then you move to a collectivity, which is, you know, you found a church, and that has, uh, these dogmas are expressed in certain formulas, uh, that is, these experiences that people have, and you make a church with dogmas and creeds. So, but it all comes from down below. None of it comes from revelation given by the prophets and by our Lord Jesus Christ and transmitted through the apostles and the church. I mean, that, that is completely alien to the system. So, he says... This elaboration consists entirely in the process of investigating and refining the primitive mental formula. That means what you cooked up in your mind as your experience of God, or whatever there is down deep. Not indeed, he continues, in itself and according to any logical explanation, but according to circumstances or vitally, as the modernists somewhat less intelligibly describe it. You see, for the modernists, you have to understand again, the truth is what you live. See, if you don't live it, it's not true for you. You don't really think it's true if you don't live it. So that's why they use that term vital. If you're living something, that means you really mean it and you feel it. See, so then you, you make this, this formulation of what you think and believe. And then he, uh, uh, I won't read the whole thing, but he goes on to say that these primitive formulas become more refined as secondary formulas, and then they they finally, with collectivity, they blossom into uh, a church dogma. Uh, But they're always looking back toward their origin, which is in the individual conscience and in the collective conscience which, of course, can change, as we know, all right? And the sacraments are subject to the same type of development. He says, for them, the sacraments are the resultant of a double impulse or need. Everything is in that need. For, as we have seen, everything in their system is explained by inner impulses or necessity. I need the supernatural. There's something in me that cries out for the supernatural. He continues, the first need is that of giving some sensible manifestation to religion. So we think of all of the primitive religions. The second is that of expressing it, which could not be done without some sensible form and consecrating acts, and these are called sacraments. So the sacraments are these external expressions of what we feel inside. Now, Understand that this opens the door to ecumenism, because the the 
you know, American Indian has experiences of the Manitou, uh, who, uh, uh, you know, is some sort of deity for them. And, you know, they, they the happy hunting grounds and all of the, the peace pipes and the smoke and, and all the other very, very bizarre things that they do, uh, worshiping this Manitou that they have. Well, you know, that's just as good as the Holy Eucharist. The Catholic well, Holy Eucharist. They're living it, aren't they? Yeah, they're living it. They are certainly attached to it. If you were to deny it, they would probably torture you to death. At least, uh, you know, 200 years ago, they would have or so. And then the Buddhists have theirs and the, and the Muslims have theirs. This is the basis of all of the ecumenism of Vatican II. This very, very uh, system. And he says... The modernists would express their mind more clearly were they to affirm that the sacraments are instituted solely to foster the faith. See that these external expressions are merely there to excite your faith. This is what the Protestants said. And the Council of Trent condemned it, and, and St. Pius X cites the Council of Trent if anyone says that these sacraments are instituted solely to foster the faith, let him be anathema. Now, I just want to put a footnote to this, that this idea of the sacraments fostering the faith solely, is that that's their sole purpose. Uh, remember Bishop Williamson, when he was in Connecticut sometime last year, he said that uh, you could go to the new mass, provided that it nourishes your faith, whatever nourishes your faith. And I think he has fallen into the serious error of modernist sacramentology, and that is that there is no objective norm of what is a true mass or not a true mass, what is a Catholic mass or not a Catholic mass. All of it depends on whether it nourishes your faith or not. And that principle can be drawn to its logical conclusions that that faith is something entirely subjective, and if something nourishes your faith, it has authenticity. So that's just a footnote to this, and I think Bishop Williamson should should read Pashendi and and take note of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's the the basic modernist notion of dogma and sacraments. It all proceeds from an interior need. Uh, it all proceeds from some need to express what you're feeling inside. Therefore, all dogmas are true in that sense, whether they contradict each other or not. And all sacraments, that is, all externalizations of the interior religious experience are true. And there, there you have it. There you have ecumenism, that dogmas really don't make any difference. As Bergoglio says, transubstantiation is merely an explanation of theologians. In fact, it's a it's a uh, defined dogma of the Catholic Church. But he says, just an explanation. We all believe that Christ is there. The, that, and he constantly attacks people who are adhering to dogmas. He he is the textbook modernist. Mm -hmm. he, he is always on the attack against people who are adhering to dogmas because he believes deeply in this system, this modernist system of dogma and of the sacraments. Another thing I want to point out is that the, the motu proprio mass, 
which was permitted in 2007, and before it, the indult mass, which was permitted in 1988, I believe it was, was permitted on the principle of modernist sacramentology, modernist theology of the sacraments. And that is, if if it pleases you, if this is something, I think they were, used the word sensitivities, if it you know, if you have sensitivity to historical and, and beautiful things, uh, well, then that's all right. To Well, then, as long as you accept Vatican II, which is the Ten Commandments of Ecumenism, you know, given uh, in stone, uh, as long as you accept that, well, then you can have your traditional Latin Mass alongside the Clown Mass or alongside all of the other, even just the, an ordinary new Mass. Uh, and as Father Chicada says, which is itself an abuse. <laughs> and uh, but and a very important point: that they have no problem because you have become a modernist. They don't mm-hmm. care if you want the Latin Mass, and, and that's why the traditional Latin Mass within the Novus Ordo. I read the other day from someone uh, who's in it. Says that it is not uh, is not growing. He said. It is not growing, and it may actually diminish. The interest in it may actually diminish. Because people, how do you have an attachment to to the traditional Latin Mass when you have been raised as a, as a Novus Ordoite uh, for all these years? The traditional Latin Mass is for you something from outer space. Mm-hmm. Why would you say Mass that way? I mean, if we're all just having an, a religious experience, and we're all ecumenical, and and we're all and sacraments are merely an outgrowth of our interior feelings. Why would you have Latin? Why would you have all of those things that indicate unchanging dogmas? It really is a is a fish out of water in in the in the Novus Ordo. It's 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 some bizarre museum piece. It'd be like putting a, a magnificent painting by. You know, Fra Angelico in the uh, New York uh, Museum of Modern Art. You know, everything yeah. is ugly, ugly, ugly. And then you come to this magnificent piece <laughs> <laughs> that just immediately draws your eye. You say, what is this thing doing in here? Everything is all abstract ugliness. And, and, and why is this here? And people coming in to the Museum of Art would say, why did they put the Fra Angelico? That belongs in the other museum. Uh, And uh, by the way, another footnote, you know, the reason why that museum was founded is because the Metropolitan Museum of Art decades ago banned abstract art from the museum. And so all of those people had to go and found their own place downtown. So, uh, so, yeah, that was they call it the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. But that's just a a little uh, I, I. sort of full of little historical anecdotes. So have to be patient. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, so to cap off uh, paragraph 21, it really it really does seem, that it, it's not said explicitly, but there is a definite theme of democracy running through it, this sort of Masonic idea of, of democracy that, y- you know, you validate your what you believe of everybody else, and if everybody else believes the same thing, then then that must be okay. Then, you know, that must be fine. And consequently, modernists have a, a horror of anybody going a different way or saying something that, that's not what they collectively think. 
there, there is this horribly democratic idea of what constitutes dogma and sacraments. Absolutely, and St. Pius X will say that uh, in this uh, encyclical, that it all comes from below, it comes from the masses. Uh, and uh, if you recall, Bergoglio, shortly after he was elected, wanted a poll taken of all people in, in the world of what they felt about the hot topic issues such as divorce and remarriage, homosexuals, and uh, some other uh, things like that. Uh, to see what they, this is all, of course, concerning the family. I'm always amazed that the, the family has to do with things that have nothing to do with the family. That is, people <laughs> living together in concubinage, divorce and remarriage, and homosexuals living together. None of those things pertain to the family. <laughs> and, and uh, But that's, you know, that was the, the idea. Uh, and uh, so he did that, again, as a convinced modernist, that he wants to get a temperature reading of the common religious experience of what uh, purports to be Roman Catholicism, and uh, that it's the, the duty of the Synod to reflect this common feeling. Otherwise, the Church is subject to becoming a, a dinosaur, and, and that no one will pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, we know the opposite is true, that in the past 50 years, the Catholic Church has received uh, nothing but bad news uh, from the point of view of belief that that nobody really takes seriously anything that it teaches anymore and from the point of view of numbers that that even if you want to just do the numbers game there is just no interest in the in the novus ordo among young people my french seminarians were telling me not too long ago that soon the society of saint pius x will be ordaining more french priests per year than all of the dioceses of France. Ugh. Yes. Ugh. And and that uh, I saw and the, and the statistic for uh, going to mass, I mean, even the new mass in France is, is less than 5%. People who go every week to mass is less than 5%. Mm -hmm. And uh, that they are, uh, many communities are actually tearing down Magnificent churches from the late Middle Ages in certain cases, uh, magnificent churches, churches which would be a big attraction in this country. You could you know, charge money to get in them. They are tearing them down uh, because there's nobody in them, and they are just sitting there, they rot, and what, what to do with them. I said that to uh, French seminarians, and they said, well, that's actually better than handing them over to the Muslims, which they have done in certain cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all Vatican II. Uh, the condition of the church in France was far, far better before Vatican II than it is now. So, so they cannot claim that their formula for saving the church and keeping it from being a dinosaur has worked. They are so yeah. prideful, these people, that they cannot pick up and read uh, and realize that their their whole system is a complete failure and a flop. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of modernism is pride. So, moving on to paragraph 22, the pontiff begins to talk about Holy Scripture, and really the, message, the key message for everybody from the modernist point of view is that inspiration, divine inspiration, is really just an intense vehemence of imminence, nothing more than that. Could you please explain this for us? First, let's talk about Catholic notion of inspiration. 
The Catholic notion of inspiration is this, that the sacred author receives a divine motion from God to conceive of the thoughts that God wants him to conceive of in his mind, and also to write the words faithfully in such a way that everyone understands what they mean. So it is truly the Word of God, and the sacred author is merely an instrument of God. So that's the Catholic notion. And consequently, the scriptures and the Catholic teaching are inerrant. That means every single word of them is absolutely true. Every single word is of God. Now, the modernist is completely in reverse. They apply the same principle that they apply to everything else, that all religion comes from below comes from inside of you, this, this lurking desire for the unknown and supernatural, and that uh, sacred authors are nothing but people who had some intense religious experiences and who put down their religious experiences on paper. So there's no idea of word of God here. I mean, if they use it, it's in a purely an allegorical sense, you know, that, that so it's like uh, inspired in the sense that this comes from this vital imminence and that God is in you. And uh, it, it's, but it's not the, it's not any idea of the objective word of God. And for this reason, the scriptures are not inerrant at all for the modernists. They're full of errors. Uh, they're full of, it's like a big, salad or, or grab bag of various thoughts and ideas of things that have evolved, uh, additions that have been made over time. You have no idea what you're reading in, in sacred scripture, you know, what pertains to the original author, if, if there was one, uh, and what was uh, the added later and what, what they consider erroneous and things. Uh, so, that's what happens with sacred scripture. They completely destroy the authority of sacred scripture. All the while, you know, having a certain religious veneration for it. Um, he, uh, the encyclical says, according to the principles of the modernists, they may be rightly described, <clears throat> meaning the sacred books, as a summary of experiences, not indeed of the kind that may now and again come to anybody, but those extraordinary and striking experiences which are the possession of every religion. Notice that. Therefore, John Paul II kissed the Koran. Because those people have their experiences of God. It it is these experiences come to people of every religion. So for JP2, the Koran is also sacred. It's the writings of religious experience. Mohammed had a religious experience, if indeed Mohammed even wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Question today, uh, whether he wrote it or not. I mean, some people question that. But it wouldn't make any difference to a modernist whether he wrote it or not. Anybody is capable of having a striking religious experience and writing down his thoughts. So that's why, although the, the Koran denies our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, denies that he even died on the cross. They said he didn't die on the cross. You know, that's still a sacred book, and J.P. took kissed it. Why? Because dogma doesn't count for anything. The contradiction that it contains against the one true God, the triune God, Christ the Savior, 
doesn't count for anything. It's all just how you feel. And, and, you know, we have a different experience of Christ than you. Well, so what? And that's why all of these ecumenical abominations have occurred since Vatican II, because they have stripped away from dogma its essential characteristic, namely that it is dogmatic. That is, it is absolute for all. It is unchanging. It comes from God. They have stripped the essential characteristics of dogma from dogma itself. Uh, so nothing's left. They're just words. And, and they're subject to constant evolution. Uh, so that's why the reading of this encyclical is key for anyone who wants to understand the present crisis. They won't understand it unless they read and study this encyclical. And St. Pius X continues, God does indeed speak in these books through the medium of the believer, but according to modernist theology, only by imminent and vital permanence. See, that's, that means that because you feel the supernatural in you, you read this book with a certain uh, reverence, see, because you're, you're turned on to God. Uh, inspiration, uh, the encyclical continues, they reply, is in no wise distinguished from that impulse which stimulates the believer to reveal the faith that is in him by words of writing, except perhaps by its vehemence. So the only thing that distinguishes you and me from St. John is that he had a very vehement experience of God, whereas ours is only second class, so to speak. And, and, uh, so, you know, it, it all comes from the bottom. It comes from the pit. That's the whole modernist system. The modernists, he says, assert a general inspiration of the sacred books, but they admit no inspiration in the Catholic sense, which is what I described at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you ready to move on to paragraph 23, or is there anything else to wrap yes, up with 22? 23. That was 22. That was 22. Yep. Yeah. So we're going on to 23, yes, which is the church. So I'm I'm pretty much uh, finished battering the modernists on scripture. <laughs> <laughs> well, please, please, please batter them on their ecclesiology then. Yes, well, this is also very important. This is one of the, uh, ecclesiology is one of the heresies of Vatican II, which is missed by most people, and especially by the SSPX. They make no objection to the new theology of the Church as found in Vatican II, even though it is condemned by many popes. They make objection to ecumenism, and they make objection to religious liberty. But I've never seen them ever make objection to the heresy concerning the Church. But in any case, that's another footnote. We're talking about modernists here. The encyclical says, they begin with the supposition that the Church has its birth in a double need. Again, the same principle. First, the need of the individual believer to communicate his faith to others, especially if he has had some uh, original and special experience. Secondly, when the faith has become common to many, the need of the collectivity to form itself into a society and to guard, promote, and propagate the common good. So first he starts talking to his friends, uh, in the village, and 
they say, oh, yes, uh, you know, I've had an experience of a Manitou as well. And, uh, <laughs> well, what's your experience? And, well, this is my experience. So they, they talk it up and they find that they have similar experiences and, and that, you know, the, 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 the demons are in everything. It's, they're in the streams and the, and the trees and everything else. So, yeah, they're all full of demons and we worship the demons and, okay. Uh, then they feel a need of collectivity. That is, we should form some sort of standardized common religion. And so the medicine man is born. And <laughs> and everything that goes with the medicine man, all of the incantations and curses and, and that sort of thing. And um, so this is how the church uh, evolved, too. There was Loisy, who was the prince of the modernists, who was excommunicated, vitandus, by St. Pius X. 1908, I think, uh, he said that Christ merely founded a movement, something like Buddha, and that then the church came along. See, that, that Christ merely intended to found a Christianity. But then the church came along because the early Christians decided that they needed a church. That was, that was his idea, that the church was an outgrowth and, and some sort of construction that the early Christians made of their experiences of Christ. All right. So, uh, so I guess, I guess in industrial, I guess in industrial terms, it's a little bit like, uh, having sort of a subsistence farmer when they're sort of on their own, scratching out a living on their own, but then moving to a mass production system where you found a church, you, you build a big factory basically. And, and everybody does, everybody's pulling in the same direction. I guess it's something like that. Yes. And you found a hierarchy just as you would in business. You know, you'll be the president, I'll be the vice president, and and uh, you have a hierarchy. And, and so the hierarchy is an outgrowth of this, this basic interior need for religion that rules everything in this system. That, that all really, the authority comes from below. And that would really tie into the rationalist idea of, well, yes, of, sure, of course, that, that seems like a sensible thing to do. That's what they must have done. That, that's where it must have been. Yes. That that uh, well, it all corresponds to their needs of the time, and we'll see that a little later in the encyclical. Mm -hmm. uh, so the encyclical says, hence the triple authority in the Catholic Church, disciplinary, dogmatic, and liturgical, is the the effect of these these uh, the, these needs. The nature of this authority is to be gathered from its origin and its rights and duties from its nature. The encyclical continues, in past times it was a common error that authority came to the church from without, meaning God. That, it is to, that is to say, directly from God. And it was then rightly held to be autocratic. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big thought. mistake. <laughs> we've been disabused of this terrible error. But the modernists say authority emanates, and I'm reading from the encyclical, vitally from the church itself. Authority, therefore, like the church, has its origin in the religious conscience, and that being so, is subject to it. See, so the hierarchy must follow the common religious conscience or feeling or experience of the Catholic masses, or whatever you know, religion. And the church's dogma must also follow it. So there is nothing fixed in this. For example, I read the other day that in the early 1900s, I think it was 1910, a woman in New York was arrested 
for smoking in public. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, times change. <laughs> that was yeah. considered something illegal. At, yeah. But you see how times change. If you did that today, the policeman would be put in jail and the woman would be his jailkeeper. Uh, <laughs> the <they laughs> people change and, and therefore the church must change with them. Now, I'm just using that as an example, but for example, in something more serious, a hundred years ago, any idea of approving of homosexual relations would be just considered absolutely revolting and unacceptable. Uh, it, it was considered grossly immoral, uh, and uh, it was also illegal. But now, you know, it's going to become part of civil rights, at least in this country, where you discriminate against people who conduct themselves in that way, it is the same thing as discriminating because of race or religion or some other things. So th there's a big, big change, tremendous change. Divorce and remarriage, even though it was permitted by Protestants, was, at least in this country, frowned upon a great deal. And I remember that Nelson Rockefeller in 1960, approximately, faced a problem in liberal New York state. Uh, whether he could be elected because he was divorced and remarried. And even Reagan in 1980, uh, in 1980 faced the same question mark. Uh, he had been married previously, and uh, I think his, other, his wife was married previously, too. So he was divorced and remarried. That, that came up in 1980, I remember. It. There was, this would be the first president who would be divorced and remarried. Andrew Jackson was divorced, but he never remarried. <laughs> I'm pointing these things out because things do change, and they generally change for the worse in recent times, because what drew men away from evil was Christianity acting upon the Roman Empire. And there emerged in the Middle Ages a, a people that was completely transformed in attitudes for the better, transformed away from the gross immorality of the Romans and the gross brutality of the Romans uh, into a, a, a society that, although perhaps not perfect in all ways, nevertheless was perfect in all of its essentials. A very religious society, a society that was based on charity and gentleness, uh, all of the dictates of the gospel. Uh, I'm sure you perhaps know from the Middle Ages that it was so gentle that battling armies would not attack each other on holy days of obligation or on Sundays, and that uh, they would not attack each other when they were eating. So if the enemy was busy eating dinner or lunch, the, the, you could not attack him, and that it was necessary merely to tag your enemy. Uh, if you could tag a knight by touching him, he had to throw down his arms, that he could not take his sword and lop your head off. That he had to lay down his arms. That's, by the way, that's the way Joan of Arc was caught. The British tagged her. Those things were unheard of in pagan times. That even survived into the 18th century, where the victorious army would have to put on a dinner for those defeated in battle uh, the next day for the officers. And mm -hmm. so the French put on a big dinner for the English when they defeated them in upstate New York uh, as, as a temporary setback for the British, uh, they put on the big meal. General Montcalm did. All of that gentleness survived into the 18th century. 
And that has been done away with since rationalism and since the revolution. People are very swiftly declining again into the brutality of paganism and the absolutely gross sexual immorality of paganism. They're moving very fast in it, uh, very, very fast. You know, that's why we're we're shocked to hear things that Bergoglio says about homosexuals or this and that and the other thing. Well, what he's doing is simply applying the principles of modernism, that the church has to keep up with this evolution of the human conscience about these things. And, and really, it is a decline in the human conscience. I mean, who knows what's next? Who knows what, what evil lurks? <laughs> you know, what people will, will, will uh, cook up next as, as their principle of civil rights. It is a very scary thing. There is already a a very small, admittedly a very small lobby in this country that are are openly seeking to legalize pedophilia. Because why not? Because why why not? Yes. Yes. There is also a bestiality movement in this country. And there there is... Why not? There is no depth of depravity to which people will not sink. We've given yeah. no restrictions. No, there isn't. Uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, so this is a really open-ended thing. Uh, this idea of everything coming from the collective conscience, uh, even the church itself. The the encyclical continues. It is for the ecclesiastical authority, therefore, to adopt a democratic form, unless it wishes to provoke and foment an intestine conflict in the consciences of mankind. See, there's that, the, the modernists always held that out to the church. You'll become a dinosaur. You'll be rejected by the masses. You'll become just, just insignificant if you don't change with the modern conscience. See, so because democracy has become the, the universal salvation of mankind since 1919, uh, the church has to conform to that too even though it was condemned both by Plato and Aristotle as a horrible form of government. And that in, in Athens, where if, any, if democracy could work in any situation, it would be in a city-state. That is, in a very confined situation in which all people went to the assembly every day or almost every day and voted, and they walked home. In such a situation, I mean, that's at least where the mechanics of it could work. Uh, But in these huge republics and empires that that the the modern world has had, I mean, it is a complete failure. I mean, just flopping right on its face, especially in the United States where, you know, Washington is broken. And I mean, all parties would admit that, that it is incapable (laughs) of governing this country anymore. And, And that, you know, this, this, this conflict between the White House and the Congress and and all those, it is incapable of legislating for the good of the country. Practically everyone would agree with that. If you look at the polls uh, on what they what people think of Congress and the the performance of Congress, I mean it's just appalling. And yeah. that's why there's so much uh, again as a footnote, so much attraction to the non-establishment types like Trump mm. and others. Uh, who uh, are from the outside and saying, really, in a way, the whole thing stinks. And I, I think people are for these these types more negatively than they are positively. Somebody is saying what they think. 
somebody is expressing their anger and and uh but anyway that's that's the evils of democracy we don't want to get into that but that's what the the modernist wants for the church is democracy and bergoglio is following through on that of course he says in the encyclical such is the situation in the minds of the modernists and their one great anxiety anxiety is in consequence to find a way of conciliation between the authority of the church and the liberty of believers. So there you have it, that the authority of the church is something like something like what the British monarchy has become. It, it's, it has a lot of pomp. It, it, is, it is sitting on top of, of a big organization, but really has no power. That's what, a, uh, and that people are, are free to do as they please or as parliament pleases. And, uh, but the you know it, it is not a uh, it has no power. That's what is meant for the papacy, and that's why Bergoglio calls himself often the Bishop of Rome, and that's why he he said when he was elected, "I'm the Bishop of Rome," which is uh, fine with the Anglicans and the Orthodox that that he be the Bishop of Rome, but that he not be the autocratic leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, the Pope says. Authority, therefore, like the church, has its origin in the religious conscience. And that being so, subject to it, should it disown this dependence, it becomes a tyranny. So if if, yes. it's, if, it's an, if it tries to assert anything in any way contrary to what the general consensus is, it's a tyranny. Yes. Yes. So the days of condemnation are over, except for those evil traditionalists who are holding <laughs> to dogmas. They are evil. He said recently that that we're we're dangerous. We're dangerous, which I think is hate speech. I think you said that about Jews. I think that is hate speech. speech. I think you're correct. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, Unfortunately for him, the days of condemnation are not over on Restoration Radio, and never will be. (laughs) So (laughs) we're gonna we're going to be those hateful. what was it? Rosary counting Neopelagians. Those, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Pharisees. All sorts of evil things. So. So, that, so, that's, so that's paragraph 24 in the New Ecclesiology. Is there anything else you'd like to say, my lord, in that paragraph before we move on to paragraph 20? So that's 23, so now moving on to 24. No, I think we can move on. So this paragraph 24 is about the relationship between church and state which is necessarily split under modernism as the church cannot prescribe any conduct whatsoever, which is incidentally condemned by Pius VI. Yes, again, this goes back to their fundamental principles. Uh, Agnosticism says that uh, from the point of view of reason, we cannot know God. We cannot know anything about God. Uh, Therefore, uh, the state, which which operates on reason and not faith, uh, should be completely separated from the Catholic Church and should, or any religion whatsoever, and should take no heed of any religion, because it's just not within its scope or domain. And to the contrary, religion coming from an interior experience really has nothing to say to the state, which concerns itself with externals, and especially as the as the modernists and pagans see it only with the temporal good of society. The Catholic Church says that uh, the state concerns itself, yes, with the temporal good, but not merely with the temporal good, that it it must 
see to the whole good of man in cooperation with the church, because man is a single thing, body and soul, and so also he needs both state and church to help him toward his respective ends, and that state and church ought to cooperate one with the other in order to bring about the good of the whole man. But no, 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 this is all different for... So, so you get a, an agnostic state, an indifferent state, uh, for the modernist, which most states are today. I mean, I, I think uh, Great Britain is officially Anglican, but you know, I don't have to tell you that that doesn't mean too much. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> well, the only... Uh, and, there, is, there is still the act of succession. The, the monarch, bad in a gilded cage as she is, the monarch is not permitted by law to be a Roman Catholic, still, even now. Yes, I know that. That was the glorious revolution of 1688, the so-called glorious revolution, which was, uh, uh, was sort of the icing on the cake of, uh, of what they did to Charles I. Yeah. But in any case, the only places that are not indifferent are the Muslim countries. So you yes. cannot uh, say you have a rosary procession in Mecca. <laughs> you know, you it's it's uh, no. you can't even show Christianity in in Saudi Arabia. You can't do anything. I mean, they might tolerate the fact that you're there if you're a diplomat or something, but you can't uh, make the sign of the cross or do things that are 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 offensive to their religion. Uh, they, and that's the. I was just going to say the national airline of Switzerland uh, clearly obviously has a Swiss flag on its tail, which is a white cross on a red background. And the national airline of Switzerland is not permitted to land within Saudi Arabia. Yes. Yes, I'm not surprised at that. And I think I said it, it was in another uh, show I did. But uh, when I'm in Schiphol in Amsterdam, I noticed that uh, there is a double standard there. All of their planes that are destined for the east, so to speak, uh, and including Indonesia, you know, where they had colonies and all, uh, have they have the cross removed from the crown. Mm-hmm. There's a little cross on KLM jets uh, sitting on the crown, and the, all of the ones that are meant for, let's call them Christian countries, have them. But then there's this whole fleet of planes that doesn't have the cross on them. Because mm-hmm. in those lands, Islam is law. See, but in let's call them Christian lands, or once Christianized lands, the apostasy is so perfect that there is no uh, union of church and state. And I'm sad to say that the first nation in the history of the world that came up with separation of church and state was the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's our contribution to society. But it was an infection that was going to take over all Christian countries. I mean, it, it's it had its you know an origin here. It had a, its or it had a beginning here, but uh, I don't think uh, it would have been long. Even if the the if the British had prevailed in the United States or in the colonies, I think that same infection would have come to all the European countries in any case. Uh, I think it was a just a, a given. It was a natural outcome of all of the evil 18th century thinking that went on. And, well, uh, <laughs> my own country was responsible for a, an awful lot of uh, the spreading of, of liberalism. And uh, as uh, St. Pius says in the encyclical, 
He says, to trace out and prescribe for the citizen any line of conduct on any pretext whatsoever is to be guilty of an abuse of ecclesiastical authority against which one is bound to act with all one's might. So it's total liberty, total liberty, which is exactly what my uh, English forefathers would have uh, preached and continue to preach. Yes, it actually comes from John Locke and uh, principally John Locke, I would say. Uh, More than anyone else, uh, he was the inspiration of all the principles of the American Constitution and Declaration of Independence. And uh, the glorious, uh, well, uh, he was contemporary with the glorious revolution. He was the big thinker in all of that stuff. Uh, he was, uh, was, I believe, a Puritan, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken. Well, I'm not too sure. I don't want to say. But uh, Puritanism uh, certainly gave a lot of impetus to all of that thought, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but Protestantism in general is at the bottom of it, and, and uh, you know, the separation of church and state. But in any case, uh, so in the modernist thought, uh, the church and state ought to be completely separated. The encyclical says, the state must therefore be separated from the church and the Catholic from the citizen. Notice that too, that you cannot mix religion with your citizenship. That's why Kennedy got up in 1960 and said, I will not involve my Catholic faith in any of my politics. He said it a little bit more directly and eloquently than that. But there was this big uh, objection from Protestants. Oh, you know, he'll take directions from the Pope and all of this. And he said that very clearly. And then you get these Catholic politicians in the United States saying, well, I'm personally against abortion, but, you know, I have to support the law and I have to do all of these things that pertain to my citizenship. And I cannot mix those two things. So that's entirely modernist to split those two things. As if it's part of being a good citizen to support abortion. Yes, and we're going through the, <laughs> what would you call it, the farce, I think, uh, the legal farce in this country. Of uh, You may have read that uh, some anti-abortionists infiltrated Planned Parenthood a number of months ago and filmed a living baby being put to death in order to sell the baby parts. I don't know if, if uh, they actually filmed it, and it went all over the Internet and everything. The farce is that now those people who managed to infiltrate are being indicted for having done such a thing as to infiltrate, whereas nothing is being done about the horror, the indescribable horror of killing babies to sell the baby parts. I mean, just a horror that beggars description. Uh, of of an evil, evil country that permits that. Not only are they not in any way disciplined, but also Congress approved of their their continued government funding. So that's, that's, welcome to the United States. Yes, well, um, it's appalling, but it's just a natural consequence for Catholics of the separation of church and state. And what people don't understand is that the the modernism permits this for U.S. congressmen to separate their Catholicism from their apparent duty to support abortion. Uh, if we finish with, if we finish with the relations between church and state in paragraph twenty-four, are you ready to go into paragraph twenty-five, my lord, which is the magisterium of the church? Yes, yes. Uh, so here. <clears throat> He says it's not enough for the modernist school that the state should be separated from the church. 
but that the faith must be subordinated to science. They are not satisfied with merely internal acts of religion, but they go to external acts, such, for example, the reception or administration of the sacraments. These, according to the modernist system, must also fall under the control of the state. Because, again, the religion concerns something that is, for them, totally invisible, totally personal, and so anything that is visible, such as the rights of the church, uh, uh, must fall under the, the rule of the state. Uh, you know, so that's what he's pointing out as a result of the modernist position. Uh, he says, it is this inevitable consequence which urges many among liberal Protestants to reject all external worship nay, all external religious fellowship, and leads them to advocate what they call individual religion. So modernism is entirely oriented toward the individual, and anything that is externalized is in, in some way proceeding from the individual. And that's another footnote to this, and that is traditionalists are often approaching the traditional Latin mass with a spirit of modernism, and that is this, that it corresponds to their needs and likes. That's why they go. They say, I don't like the new mass. I don't like the changes, but I like the traditional mass, so I go. That is a modernist approach to it, because it's all anchored in the individual, what you like, whereas the, the true Catholic the motive should be what is in accordance with the teaching of the Catholic Church, what is in accordance with the traditions of the Catholic Church, because I must submit to those things. Uh, and that is a Catholic way to approach it. Because if you just make it a, a, a simply a, an exercise of your own preference, well, then that gives the modernist the right to have his preferences, too. That it is all anchored in the individual. So there are many traditional Catholics who are down deep modernists in the sense that they don't, you know, really want to be heretics or anything, but they are approaching it from a modernist point of view. Um, I believe, well, I know, I know that you've, you've referred in another sermon, um, you referred to Catholics, some traditional Catholics, sort of SSPXs and the R&R Brigade, treating the Latin Mass as a, as a spiritual pick-me-up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, it's, a, it's the same principle. It, it means something to me. I like it. Uh, I need it. Uh, I, I can't get through my week without it, so I have to go to something that picks me up. It's very, very common. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, most people approach the, the problem in the church as simply, well, I want to go to Mass. You know, I, I want to have a peaceful religious situation. I don't want to fight any battles. I don't want to get into the fray of the, uh, the, that's going on between the enemies of the church, especially internal enemies of the church, and, and the true faith. They're not interested. They they just want to go to church on Sunday and to have a quote unquote normal ecclesiastical life unquote. They lack generosity in the spirit of martyrdom. Uh, they they need to defend the church just as you would defend your country if it were attacked. 
they, they need to, to come up and, and do what is necessary. I'm sure the young men in 1914 or in 1939 had a, a lot of plans. You know, they were probably in college or, or, or were aspiring to, to various careers and marriage and probably had girlfriends and so forth. Then the war comes and everything changes for them. The whole world changes. Many of them did not even come back from the war or they came back maimed and, and unable to marry or unable to pursue their careers. And this is the same in the church. There are things happen in history whereby it is necessary to, you know, put down the plow, so to speak, and to go off to war. <clears throat> and and the the Catholics must see this as a terrible war, uh, the, the the final Armageddon, so to speak, mm-hmm. between the forces of the devil uh, and, and the enemies of the church and and Roman Catholicism. Uh, but uh, many approach it from a very kind of selfish and what we call in, this, uh, in the spiritual life, pusillanimous spirit. That means uh, don't bother me too much. I don't want too much work. I don't want to be bothered. I let somebody else do it. That's uh, to be pusillanimous, to be of small soul, literally, from the Latin. That approach of, well, you know, I need, <laughs> I need a pick-me-up. It's I, 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 I. See, it's not what does what does the church teach? What what are my obligations? What it's all just what's in me uh, and and what I want and what I need. That gives license to modernism because well they they have their needs they have their pick me up. Uh, so it 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 really is, is not a sufficient response in any, any way to what is going on. I was just going to say, but in terms of the magisterium of the church. Going back to the separation of church and state, what it really means is that the church is subjected to the state. And Pope Pius X goes on to talk about this ecclesiastical magisterium, the, this modernist, uh, this modernist notion. What what exactly is ecclesiastical magisterium? Well, the magisterium of the church is the teaching that is done by popes and councils as various levels of authority. Uh, it is to take a revelation and to propose it as uh, a dogmatic formula, or it could be not necessarily a dogmatic formula. It could be of lesser authority, but nevertheless magisterium to which we owe assent. And modernists find this as, as just something appalling, that there should be a group of people in Rome, with, you know, and particularly the Pope, uh, who decide what you should think. Because as we, uh, we have said in, in another part, uh, you have to understand the modernists, that all religion comes from underneath, it comes from down deep, and the ecclesiastical authority is something created by the common consciousness of people concerning God and their religious experiences. The, the, the magisterium cannot in any way offend the the consciences and and attitudes of the people of the church. So, Saint Pius X says in the encyclical, the following is their conception of the magisterium of the church. No religious society, they say, can be a real unit unless the religious conscience of its members be one, and also the formula which they adopt. So that means. The authority must 
take the temperature of the uh, people, must take polls, find out what they think, and then conform the dogmas to what the people think. That's the modernist system. Uh, and we see that with Bergoglio uh, you know, and uh, the modernists in general that uh, saying that you know the church has to keep up, it can't you know, remain in the Middle Ages, uh, and uh, it has to ad- adapt itself to the times. All of this is, is old hat, and that's been said over and over again. But it is the driving force of the modernists and is the driving force of the changes of Vatican II that the, the church must change itself in order to fit the times. Uh, the, the word used in the 1960s was aggiornamento, which means updating. The, you know, that's it. That, that's what drives the whole thing. And they have such a confidence in it that even though, you know, <laughs> the, everything is in ruins, they still think that there's, <laughs> it's going to have a wonderful effect. And uh, you know, it just isn't there. So the church must find some sort of formula that corresponds to the common conscience. You know, it's the role of authority to, to find out what the common conscience is. And that's ecclesiastical magisterium when the authority comes up with some sort of formula that reflects the common conscience. So we'll see that soon, very probably, when Bergoglio approves of communion for the divorce and remarried. I, I think that, that we'll, we'll, be, we'll be seeing that. And other things, other very shocking things that he will do, uh, because it's in conformity with the times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so St. Pius X says, it necessarily follows that the ecclesiastical magisterium must be dependent upon them, and meaning the, the populace, and should therefore be made to bow to the popular ideals to prevent individual consciences from expressing freely and openly the impulses they feel, to hinder criticism from urging forward a dogma in the path of its necessary evolution is not a legitimate use, but an abuse of power given for the public wheel. It's a very important point because uh, that means that the, the authority of the church should not repress modernist theologians. See, so when theologians spout heresy, they should not get threats of excommunication or excommunication itself, but rather it's all part of the process where, where they are delving into new areas, uh, new evolution, areas of evolution, and so the church should just watch it and just monitor it. And it, no one should be threatened with excommunication because he says something heretical, because what is heretical today might be dogma tomorrow. So, uh, no, that's very true. And what it was dogma yesterday could be, uh, or dogma today could be heresy tomorrow. So he says, to condemn and proscribe a work without the knowledge of the author, without hearing his explanations, without discussion, is something approaching to tyranny. And this was always said in the 1960s, though, uh, because there was still some uh, effort to curb some of the theologians in the 1960s that, oh, you know, due process of law, they condemn our works without even hearing us, and and here we are, you know, we report things, and we're our victims, and I remember all of that. He has his finger on modernism. It all came true. And notice this, 
And here again, it is a question of finding a way of reconciling the full rights of authority on the one hand and those of liberty on the other. <laughs> See, so authority has to tread lightly. And and whereas, you know, the theologians shouldn't be too brash, too. I mean, you know, there's like a, uh, a certain prudence, but uh, so and they see a that authority must play the role of being conservative. And I think we'll see this a little later being conservative. And the theologian is is the the progressive force. And and by an interaction of these two things, uh, uh, a synthesis is made and, and something happens. So. So each so you could get a radical, for example, like Ratzinger, just as radical as any anybody else in Vatican II, and one of the creators of Vatican II. So he turned into Mister Conservative when he became supposedly the Pope, and uh, and was was on the other side of the desk, so to speak. But he did not. Uh, he had Hans Kung for lunch. I mean, he did not excommunicate Hans Kung, who, who doesn't believe anything, honestly, and. You know, he, he exercised that same modernist restraint with regard to theologians. I mean, theologians should be pious people who believe more deeply than anybody else. The, the term theologian has been uh, absolutely besmirched by the council because, or it's you know, modernism in general. Because you know, you say the word theologian is like a, you know, it's like a dirty word practically, because they are the ones that have destroyed everything. Schillebecks and Ronder and all that, but a theologian is is St. Thomas is a theologian. Uh, I'm using it in the modern terminology. They and then he says, now listen to this. In the meantime, the proper course for the Catholic will be to proclaim publicly his profound respect for authority, while never ceasing to follow his own judgment. My lord, I know exactly where you're going here. I know exactly where you're yeah. going. But- Okay, there anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, first of all, that's the modernist. You see, they they will not leave the church. See, they they want the church. It's, it's it's. I always use the comparison of thugs who have occupied your Rolls Royce. <laughs> that these they they you know this beautiful church. They want it. They they want its credibility. They want its history. Uh, they they see it as a great vehicle for their purposes, and they're sitting in it, but the thing won't start, so they can't move it. And by that I mean that they cannot gain authority over it because mm-hmm. of their evil intention for it. Uh, so that's my my. Uh, but yes, you know where I'm going with this. This is the exact <laughs> formula of recognize and resist. Yeah. Recognize him as pope, but resist his his teaching. And here it is condemned in black and white in Pashendi as a modernist principle that, oh, yes, he's the Pope, he's the Pope, he's the Pope. But we decide what we will accept and what we will reject. You could not get a, a more a purer uh, expression of modernism than that formula. Yet that is what operates the Society of St. Pius X and all of their ancillary organizations and, and people who are interested in what they say. That is their idea, and it's modernist. It, 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 it is something that does not come from Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, their general direction for the Church is as follows, that the ecclesiastical authority, since its end is entirely spiritual, should strip itself of that external pomp which adorns it in the eyes of the public. 
right. So the uh, the the papacy has always been adorned, and, and bishops and even priests to a uh, lesser extent uh, has always been adorned by a certain amount of external pomp. Uh, the 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 papacy is particularly, but also bishops, uh, and that is in order to impress upon people the importance of their role uh, as guardians of the truth, as uh, distributors of the sacraments, and, and uh, as rulers of the church, that human beings uh, need to translate their spiritual vision into a material reality. Uh, it's mm-hmm. true in all things. I mean, you know, if the if the president of the United States or the prime minister of England, let's say the queen of England drove around in some, some sort of, you know, uh, like a military vehicle or a, like a Jeep or you know, some sort of, <laughs> or, 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 you know, just uh, lived in a, in a, in a flat in London someplace and got into some, you know, crummy little car and drove around in, in a pair of shorts, uh, You'd say, you know, this is the Queen of England. I mean, who is this? You know, she's just some lady. You know, lives in a flat, and and <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it doesn't go. It, it it it's not correct. So she lives in Buckingham Palace. She's always impeccably dressed. Uh, never seen in the same thing twice, <laughs> and and uh, never ever have I ever noticed her in the same thing twice. I always wonder what happens to those things that she had on. I mean, does somebody get them, or or do they? I've just no them idea. Up? <laughs> I've no idea. I just know that she's things. she's got a very good team around her who dresses her. I know that much. <laughs> I can imagine, and and so uh, and you know they get the horses out, they get the the guard out, the and which is all very appropriate, and you know that that's the Queen of England. Is <laughs> there's no mistaking who she is, <laughs> and the same is true. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, now the Prime Minister in England is a little different because he is just the Prime Minister, you know, so to speak. Uh, you know, he's the evolution of that office was, was gradual, and, and so he doesn't get as much pomp, I don't think, uh, as the no, Queen does. Nothing, uh, nothing like it. But uh, the President gets a good deal, I mean, for a, a Republican kind of mentality over here. The President of the United States gets a good deal of pomp. Uh, it's just natural to human beings to do that. So also it's natural for human beings to dress religious authority uh, in such a way. And uh, and it always has been true, except with Protestantism, because in Protestantism you have a, a democratic idea of religion. But we won't get into that. Uh, but the uh, uh, even in the Anglican Church, uh, you know, there's a great deal of pomp in that. You know, it's just natural to show externally what you know to be true internally. And so that's, uh, and now we see this in Bergoglio. Bergoglio, uh, you know, everybody had to get rid of all of the pomp that was brought back by Ratzinger. Uh, he walks around in that see-through cassock that he's got oh, where you can see oh, his oh. black pants uh, and oh, some oh. sort of out arrangement of the shirt hanging out. I mean, you can tell what's going on underneath. Uh, it's it's embarrassing. And then the the the, the uh, sash is hanging under the belly, something like uh, you know what you'd see in a bar or something, where you know people are you know the big <laughs> belly hanging out over the sash. I mean that the, the rule is for you know if you're kind of heavy in 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 the belly area, 
you wear your sash up above your belly. Uh, and, but no, he, he wears it underneath. Uh, so, but you know, he, he, uh, that's might be a minor thing, you know, but it just is one more way in which he has followed the plan of the modernist. That's why I'm pointing it out. Well, there's, there's a, uh, the authority uh, of its pomp. There's also the black shoes. Uh, there's things like the black shoes. You wouldn't wear white shoes. And, um, there's no papal crown. Uh, they've slowly stripped it. The Sadia Justitoria disappeared a long time ago. The papal oh, crown, well, I mean, at least Roncalli was crowned. Montini was crowned with that ghastly silver bullet thing that <laughs> that he then sold. Um, and yes, ev- it's, I, think it's, he gave it, I think he gave it to the UN who sold it, or which... Oh, right. Oh, I see. Uh, well, yeah, that was a gift of Milan. Now, Milan was the center of, you know, uh, socialism and communism. And, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, that awful thing that he was crowned with. Uh, yeah, it's just but as well he gave it away. Well, apparently the Milanese silversmiths were not happy when he gave it away. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to kill him. But um, uh, <laughs> it, it just, they've, they've stripped it, of, they've stripped the papacy of every kind of, I, I even, well, actually, you know, to be fair, it wasn't, it wasn't SSPX, uh, uh said to me once, you know, they find he found it distasteful. The Sadi Justitoria, he found that distasteful that, you, that that the Pope would be carried to Mass. And it's, but it's a symbol of his office, and Pius X didn't like all the pomp of the papal office, yet he was humble enough to know that that was the office, and that's what was required. Mm-hmm. There's a yes, sort of fal- very true. sort of false humility that we've it got is. to have... Well, it, it's slum priests, isn't it? We've got to all be slum priests. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is a false humility. And one of the reasons for the Sadia Justitoria was in order to see the Pope. It wasn't, you know, all pomp. It was that you know, people want to look at him. And if you're walking in the crowd and, and you're six people back, you can't even see him uh, right. in, in St. Peter's. So they, they would, you know, put him on that. And uh, But it also, you know, that was common for... Uh, monarchs and, and so forth to be carried uh, uh, around uh, palaces and whatnot. It's just, you know, went with the authority. You know? But, I mean, you might say that that's a, a, a somewhat of a minor note on this, but nevertheless, it, it, it goes with the whole picture of making authority into a, a democratic functionary authority instead of one that... For example, the kings before the revolution uh, also had a great deal of external pomp because they were exercising the authority of the state, which is the authority of God. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they would have all kinds of uniforms, and, and the British monarchy still keeps that to a great extent. Uh, they had all kinds of uniforms because of their representatives, uh, because they were representatives of God. Now, when the revolution came, uh, and, and you know, like with Louis Philippe in the, uh, 1830, and then later on after Napoleon III died, uh, with the uh, all of the democracy and republic, and republics coming in, uh, then then human the the rulers just put on regular clothing because they're just democratic functionaries. They're, they're just uh, people there to to do the will of the, the masses, and the same is true in the modernist system of ecclesiastical authority. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, if you're finished with uh, paragraph 25, my Lord, uh, shall we move on to the evolution of doctrine, which is paragraph 26? Yes, yes. 
Uh, he says, first of all, they lay down the general principle that in a living religion, everything is subject to change and must, in fact, be changed. That is something that the Novus Ordo conservatives must understand, that they are living in a religion that is subject to the laws of evolution, that it is constantly changing. You know, they're trying to, to hold on to things and bring it back and they, uh, freeze it into a, a, a state in, in which they could accept it, in which they would feel happy about it, and perhaps with some compromises and some unhappiness, but nevertheless stabilize the Catholic religion uh, of Vatican II. That's the ideal of the Novus Ordo conservative. They miss the whole point. This is an ongoing evolution and changes constantly. There is nothing to hold on to. And they don't understand that. Mm -hmm. they, they just have to go along with the flow and accept the changes as they come. And that's why, you know, now you have a conservative pope. Now you have a liberal. Now you have a conservative well, that's all part of the evolution. See, you know, everyone was rejoicing over Ratzinger. Oh, you know, finally we've got somebody that's going to put a stop to this. And, you know, and no, that was just one moment of the evolution. It's something like a boat dragging its anchor. Uh, it's got no firm anchor. The 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 conservatives are the anchor. They're trying to sort of grab onto something, but really they, they can't. The boat's being taken away, and all they're really doing is slowing it down. They're not going to stop it. They'd be much better to just cut loose and let the boat go. Yes, it is a religion in movement and motion, and they, they should never think that, you know, even if tomorrow Bergoglio dies and they elect Cardinal Burke, that that is going to be the, the, the final outcome of Vatican II, that he is going to in some way give us a, an, an acceptable notion of Vatican II and, and everyone will be happy. No. He'll die in a few years and, and then Bergoglio will come back and, and start it all over again because there is mm -hmm. nothing fixed in this. There, they, you know, and, they, and the Novus Ordo conservatives don't understand that. St. Pius X says, to the laws of evolution, everything is subject under penalty of death. Dogma, church, worship, the books we revere as sacred, even faith itself. I mean, if that doesn't describe the past 50 years of the Catholic Church, everything has been wiped away, destroyed, and replaced with a, a, a modernist monstrosity. Mm -hmm. So it's a very important point to understand that, that this is setting the church on, a, on an evolutionary course. Uh, Ratzinger, back in the early 90s, gave a speech in a Protestant church in uh, Rome where he said, I, don't, I can't predict what the papacy will be like in 20 years, 30 years, which is around now. I, I cannot even tell you what it will be like, because they, they understand this principle. He says, the primitive form of faith they tell us, was rudimentary and common to all men alike. So everyone was one in the beginning, for it had its origin in human nature and human life. So everyone had an original, same religious experience. 
right? And then with time, these religious experiences mutated and evolved according to various historical circumstances. And that's why you have various different religions. And then he, he says that in addition to these religious experiences and this religious sense, extraordinary men came along, whom we call prophets, of whom Christ was the greatest. He's talking about the modernists. Both because in their lives and in their words, there was something mysterious, which faith attributed to the divinity. You see, so they they were like special people, and the, 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 their followers became so enamored with them that they ascribed divinity to these prophets. And they continue, and because it fell to their lot to have new and original experiences, fully in harmony with the religious needs of their time. So uh, they, these people were divinized, like Buddha or, or Confucius. I mean, perhaps not divinized in, in a strict sense, but made into quasi-gods uh, because of the depth of their religious experience and how they led other people into this religious experience. Uh, I continue... The progress of dogma, the encyclical says, is due chiefly to the fact that obstacles to the faith have to be surmounted. Enemies have to be vanquished and objections have to be refuted. So this is how dogma comes about, that, that we have to overcome obstacles and, and enemies. That's usually people like us. And, and uh, <laughs> objections. Right? So this is... Uh, they they find in Christ that some that divine something which faith recognized in him was uh, slowly and gradually expanded in such a way that he was at last held to be God. So at Nicaea, three hundred years after Christ ascends into heaven, practically, then they they define that he's God. But that you know took three hundred years for this to, to evolve. In fact, he was not God; he was just an ordinary human being. They would say. But, you know, the early Christian community was really, really enamored with him. They say, the encyclical says, the chief stimulus of the evolution of worship consists in the need of accommodation to the manners and customs of people, as well as the need of availing itself of the value which certain acts have acquired by usage. See, so... All liturgy must be uh, accommodated to the times. And that's why in the 1960s we saw guitars. Uh, I'm sure there's other things. I, I saw that in the Philippines a priest was on one of those uh, uh, one of those things that you, uh, that uh, I forget what they call them, that are on wheels. Like you can sort of ride around on them. Uh, it's something new. Uh, and he was giving his sermon riding around on this this little little thing that you stand on that moves you around. Well, oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, believe it or not, he got in trouble with his bishop for doing that. And I thought, gosh, that's the least of what they do. Maybe he. But it's not like. Maybe he contravened some kind of health and safety law or something like that. Possibly, or or those batteries that they use, those lithium batteries. You know, those are not those are not very good either. They're, so not, environment, must, they're not environmentally friendly. That go against the encyclical, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> or the recyclable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there go 
echoes all of the traditional Latin mass, just to, you know, in that one sentence. And then the need of availing itself of the valley which certain acts have acquired by usage. So that means uh, availing yourself of the customs of the, the voodoo people and the American Indians and, and Buddhists and Hindus and you know, everything else that has come down the pike. Uh, uh, you just, uh, you know, you incorporate those things. So all of these religious symbols can be uh, incorporated into the Catholic worship. Uh, so uh, that's what, you know, it, it all pans out. We've seen it. He says, finally, evolution in the church itself is fed by the need of adapting itself to historical conditions and of harmonizing itself with existing forms of society. So there you go. It's got to... to get along with uh, whatever is concocted by the modern world with regard to morality, with regard to attitudes, and with regard to forms of society, meaning socialism and, and, and other things that have been condemned. It's just all horribly, horribly fluid, isn't it? There's nothing fixed about it. The, it has to, you know, as you said, my lord, it has to change. It's funny. I was I was reading this week about uh, you, you can't the sort of well the sort of pluralist or subjectivist rel- whatever you want to call it pluralism subjectivism relativism it's all the same thing about the society we live in four four stories sort of uh, sort of struck me one one some of them are quite old but there's apparently there's a 52 year old man living as a six year old girl in Canada he is he's actually oh He's actually a, he's actually a former Nova Sordo, father of seven, I think. Um, oh. And he's de- and he's decided at the age of fifty two, he's he's got divorced and he's gone off to live as a six year old girl and play with dolls. So he's described himself as tra- tra- both trans age and transgender. Then we've got Rachel ah. Dull. Then we've got Rachel Dullazal, who is trans race, who is a white lady who identifies as black. We've got a lady. <laughs> A lady in Norway who believes that she's a cat. Uh, she's trans-species. <laughs> she's trans-species, apparently. And then, of course, we've got the famous Bruce Jenner. Obviously, I'd probably be prosecuted for calling him Bruce Jenner. Uh, he's, he's transgender. So we've got trans-age, trans-race, trans-species, transgender. And, 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 and who is... Who is anybody to tell? There used to be places for people like this. They were called mental asylums, yeah. and that's where they would live. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but who is anybody to tell any of these people that they're wrong? And that is the yeah. as St. Pius X says, that is the existing form of society, and the church must adopt to to live with that. Uh, yes, yes, it's it's open ended. I think I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the, the, some of the things that will come down the the, the road uh, from the moral point of view. Uh, we talked about the pedophilia, which I think is very close, but also sadomasochism. Mm-hmm. Why should they not have their pleasures? Uh, who's to say that sadomasochism is wrong? And if you look at Wikipedia, I think there's a list of something. It's over a hundred what they call uh, you know, sexual pathology, you know, the types of sexual pathology, which, of course, will no longer be called that, but various attractions to things that are quite bizarre. But who's to say what's bizarre? Who's to say what the norm is? It, it, what is normal? 
And if you make pleasure the ultimate principle, well, then the norm is pleasure. Whatever gives you pleasure, that's okay. So that is so open-ended that I can't even think about what the youth that we have now will have to face 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just can't even <laughs> thank God that at least I know how old I am, that you don't have to see this with your eyes, what is in store for this, this race. Uh, you know, when you see all of the, uh, the moral corruption and the, the very corruption of moral principle. That's even more to be feared. You know, it's one thing if people are corrupt morally, but they still adhere to the principle. They still know what is right and wrong. They still admit what is right and wrong. They might be weak and they might sin, but they still adhere to what is right and wrong. But when the very principle is corrupted, that's the worst possible. It, it, it is frightening, and you know, and they'll turn on on people who don't accept it. And so, you know, they're, they're, we're going to see a lot of persecution, I believe, in various forms, maybe not lions and, you know, being thrown to lions, but the tightening of screws uh, uh, against us uh, and uh, making life miserable for us. Uh, I think that's going to come down mm-hmm. uh, in, in future decades, I think, because we make them nervous. We are outcasts. We condemn what they say and do, and uh, they, they will not accept us. No, I agree. I agree. And just finishing that paragraph, he sums up, and here, before proceeding further, we wish to draw attention to this whole theory of necessities or needs. For beyond all that we have seen, it is, as it were, the base and foundation of that famous method which they describe as historical. So the the religion is the outgrowth of necessities or needs. So that's a very important point to to keep in mind as you're discussing modernism. So next paragraph, mm-hmm. 27, right? Uh, tradition and progress. He says, although evolution is urged on by needs or necessities, yet if controlled by these alone, it would easily overstep the boundaries of tradition. So here he's going to say that there has to be some cap on this runaway progress that is dictated by necessities and needs. So he says, the conserving force exists in the church and is found in tradition. Tradition is represented by religious authority, and this both by right and in fact. By right, for it is in the very nature of authority to protect tradition. And in fact, since authority, raised as it is above the contingencies of life, feels hardly, or not at all, the spurs of progress. The progressive force, on the contrary, responds to the inner needs, lies in the individual consciences, and works in them. So there is a a type of tension between authority, which wants to preserve tradition, and the forces of progress, which is in the the people, we might say, or the the nitty-gritty, the grassroots, which seeks progress, and that they have to interact, and, and the authority must put the brakes on, on progress in order that there be a, a suitable evolution. And this is the reason why we've had a Ratzinger. I, I think uh, Ratzinger realized that it was going a little bit too fast, and uh, that there was a danger of losing continuity and of 
uh, fanning the flames of somebody that might say that, you know, this is no longer the Catholic faith. Uh, I, I think that's why he uh, took that role of, you know, quote unquote, the promoter of tradition. Also mm-hmm. notice that that tradition is not something that they detest in itself. But only they detest it only if it is not in accordance with the principles of modernism. So the traditional Latin mass is not necessarily uh, an object of detestation for them. It is, you know, if that's your needs, if that's your necessities, if that's your pick-me-up, fine. But you must accept it as a, uh, a way of expressing the modernist principle. You must accept the modernist principles. We won't let you have it unless you accept the modernist principles. And this is what I believe SSPX is faced with now. Uh, you know, they are not going to accept a society that says, as it did to a certain extent in the past, that Vatican II is is a lot of rot. I mean, if you look at some of the statements of Archbishop Lefebvre, I mean, he's quite strong about Vatican II. And, and uh, you know, there was a time when and he was denouncing this and that and this and that. Well, that voice, uh, to a great extent, has fallen silent since 1991. Uh, and obviously it has. But you know, it, there has not been a, a continuation of that constant barking at the Novus Ordo for its modernist extravagances. To the contrary, it's very, very quiet. And, for example, even Bishop Fele said of Bergoglio, he's a genuine modernist. Well, he backtracked on that. You know, he, he mollified that later because they know that they have to get into the modernist system. They have to be good modernists and they can have their niche and their side chapel of tradition provided they uh, adhere to the modernist system. And provided they say that the modernist reform, Vatican II, is all essentially good, perhaps a little imperfect, but all essentially good that it's conducive to heaven, that it is the true faith, they can hope to reform it, they can give Vatican II an interpretation which pleases them in the, in the spirit of diversity, you know, uh, of theological diversity. They have to become a, an act in the big tent, you know, like the elephants are on one side, and then, you know, the acrobats are on the other side. Well, they have to become an act. That's the only way that they will go in. And they have been preparing themselves for that. They have fallen silent. They are watchdogs that have no bark. I mean, for many, many years now. I mean, there's been nothing. Uh, did, was there any, did you hear Bishop Fele make some sermon against that horrid video of apostasy? that Bergoglio put out around Epiphany. No, the silence silence has been deafening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if that had been Archbishop of February, it would have been all over the newspapers. He would have called a big conference. He would have said this is an insult to Almighty God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. He he would have gone on and on and on about it. Now, I'm not absolving him. He's the one that, that gave impetus to the idea of hooking up with the modernists. I'm not absolving him, but I am saying that, despite all, he did react strongly to to things like that, and that voice has not been around since 1991. Uh, 
Um, and that's a long time. That's uh, 20 some years. And uh, they have fallen into you know, this, this trap of modernism, uh, of the modernist system. And this is because they regard these modernists as popes. If you regard them as popes, you must somehow reconcile with them. It's a drive in you to hook up with the pope. A Catholic has to be subject to the pope. He has to be with the pope. And for as long as you see those people, those modernists, as the authority of the Catholic Church, you have a drive in you to submit to them and to be subject to them. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the whole reason why that thing is going to founder, uh, in the sense that it, you know, it won't founder as an organization, but it will founder in, in what they were meant to be, uh, the, the, in their original purpose. It will founder, it will collapse in their original purpose and they'll just become you know something like what the uh, what's in Brazil you know one of these type of you know uh, society of St. Peter or something like that uh, I should get back to tradition and progress but that that's the idea of authority is to be a a break on the progress also authority does not mind tradition as long as it is in the modernist system. That's why SSPX can hope for a rehabilitation by the modernists, because they are willing to accept the modernist system. Uh, That's a very important point. So, you know, they can have a place, too, in the big tent. Mm -hmm. I think we have blasted that sufficiently. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to move Uh, on to... Paragraph 28, then, which is continual change, or is there anything more to say? Well, actually, I think 20, we're still in 27. Okay. Uh, the modernist complex encyclical says that the modernists express astonishment when they are reprimanded or punished. Oh, poor <laughs> me. Uh, you know, and it's true, they did. You know, this is written in 1907. These people were mostly very well-educated people. Uh, the modernists, and uh, they consider themselves saviors of the church because they were bringing the church out of the Middle Ages. Uh, And so that authority should come down upon them was just absolutely incredible. But they have no care for authority. The encyclical says, let authority rebuke them if it pleases. They have their own conscience on their side and an intimate experience which tells them with certainty that what they deserve is not blame but praise. Again, you know, that applies very much to the recognize and resist people. You know, that even though we are thumbing our nose at authority, as they see it, uh, we are the ones to be praised and not blamed because we are upholding traditions and, and, and the, the people in Rome are not. Okay, so they, they, they very much fall into the modernist definition, the SSPX and the recognize and resist people. Uh, the encyclical goes, goes on. Then they reflect that, after all, there is no progress without a battle and no battle without its victims. Remember what Stalin said, that you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs in uh, referring to his mass murders. And victims, they are willing to be like the prophets and Christ himself. So that's how the modernists saw themselves in this era, that uh, they were the victims, uh, that that the church will eventually accept this, and there are quotes to that effect, 
that with time, everything will go their way. Uh, very, very chilling quotes of that nature. Just stay in the church. It will work itself out. We will eventually prevail. Uh, quotes from modernists. Uh, I have them in my church history course from modernist books. So it's necessary to play the victim, you know, that, that the church is not caught up with us yet. Uh, it is necessary to be the martyr, to shed blood, so to speak, for this cause. We have to be patient. Time will, will be on our side. And the awful part of it is that it's all true. Mm-hmm. That they, they, time was on their side. They stayed in. And that's a whole other show to do is how they uh, managed to uh, prevail. But they managed to prevail. And now we have what we have. The encyclical says their sole grief is that it remains deaf, meaning authority, to their warnings. For in this way, it impedes the progress of souls. But the hour will most surely come when further delay will be impossible. For if the laws of evolution may be checked for a while, they cannot be finally evaded. See, that's chilling. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what the modernists said. Stay in the church. Stay in the church. And, and fight it, and and, and move on, and, and you'll see that because the the, the forces of evolution, I mean, this comes from the Wazi, it comes from Tyrell, uh, Tyrell, uh, they uh, are so strong that nothing can stand up to it. Mm-hmm. It's very very, ugh. and it says while they the modernists make a pretense of bowing their heads. Their minds and hands are more boldly intent on uh, than ever on carrying out their purposes. So they are full of zeal, a, a horrid, evil zeal, for carrying out this intention of totally transforming the church on the principles of modernism. And it says, and because it is necessary for them to remain within the ranks of the church in order that they may gradually transform the collective conscience. So they bow their heads, you know, okay, we submit, Holy Father, all with the intention of one day uh, transforming the collective conscience. That's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. And here it is in 1907, we're being told. Uh, again, that's why I say you cannot understand fully what is going on in the church today unless you read this encyclical very, very carefully and absorb it. Pius X knew exactly what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. 28, the previous condemnations of modernism. Mm-hmm. He says, it is thus, venerable brethren, he's talking to the bishops, for all encyclicals were meant primarily for bishops, that for the modernists, whether as authors or propagandists, there is, there is to be nothing stable, nothing immutable in the church. Here we go again is the same warning, that it's all fluid. It changes every day. It says the weather changes every single day the Church goes through an evolutionary process. And, and that's why the Novus Ordo Conservative is doomed. If he thinks that he can put some stop to this, if he thinks that through a, you know, an election of, a, of some sort of conservative that this is all going to, to stop, or, or at least be brought to some sort of compromised uh, peace. He, he is deceived. 
it just won't happen. Uh, you know, he might get a, a Ratzinger in there for a while where there's a, a respite. But, you know, we saw that, that their hopes were dashed at the election of Bergoglio. They were in, the, in a depression because they thought that Ratzinger was the hope of the future in the sense that it had stopped that there had been a, a, a stop in the, in the evolutionary process and that finally we can you know, have a series of popes that, that will keep sanity. Not that Ratzinger was sanity, he was a heretic, but they kidded themselves into thinking that he was because he wore those beautiful vestments and he permitted the traditional Latin mass. So they, they made a, a type of, of God out of him and uh, thought that this is, this is the, the course of the future. And it absolutely was not. They don't understand that Vatican II is the problem. Vatican II was the impetus for all of the evolutionary process in the Catholic Church, and that the only way that you're going to solve the problem is by dumping Vatican II. Vatican II is the source of the problem. Everything that we've suffered for the past 50 years comes from that awful council. And it's got to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be happy to burn those documents. If anyone would like to elect me the Pope, I will burn those documents <laughs> as the first thing to do. <laughs> Public, <laughs> solemn burning. Oh, we can you know, I might be arrested for, for climate, you know, uh, the, uh, the smoke and the fire. <laughs> might, might be bad for the climate, but so be it. <laughs> well, we can only hope. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I have visions of carrying out these great tomes of Vatican II, probably leather-bound and magnificent gold bindings and all, and and uh, throwing them on a big pyre and watching them go up in smoke. <laughs> that would be fun to say, to see that happen. <laughs> it would be a brilliant day. Yeah, I think we all look forward to that. One day, maybe. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Um, so he, he so, quotes uh, a few early condemnations of modernism here, and, uh, and one is a Pius IX, quotes Pius IX, saying, These enemies of divine revelation expel human progress to the skies, and with rash and sacrilegious daring would have it introduced into the Catholic religion as if this religion were not the work of God but of man or some kind of philosophical discovery susceptible of perfection by human efforts. That, that's what you call an early condemnation, uh, in the sense that it doesn't specifically address it, but it, it addresses the principles of modernism. He also quotes Pius IX saying, condemning this statement, divine revelation is imperfect and therefore subject to continual and indefinite progress corresponding with the progress of human reason. There again, uh, the, the, the principle of evolution inserted into revelation and dogma. And then you have also uh, the Vatican Council, that means the, the 1870 Vatican Council. It says, the doctrine of the faith which God has revealed has not been proposed to human intelligence to be perfected by them as if it were a philosophical system but as a divine deposit entrusted to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully guarded and infallibly interpreted. Hence, also, that sense 
of the sacred dogmas is to be perpetually retained, which our Holy Mother, the Church, has once declared. Nor is this sense, meaning the meaning of it, ever to be abandoned on plea or pretext of a more profound comprehension of the truth. That last sentence is very, very important, because what the modernists do is accept the whole creed, they accept everything in the councils, the popes, everything, but they suck out of it its original meaning, and they give it a new meaning, and they also apply the rules of evolution. And that is, well, that was true for its time. That was the conscience of the time. But we have a different time, and therefore we don't deny those things. They were true for their time, but we have a different time, and, and, and therefore we have different truths. That is not a problem for them at all. They, they don't see any contradiction. That's a perfectly normal way to address it. So that, that statement of Vatican I is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, he quotes, uh, let intelligence and science and wisdom, therefore, this is the council, increase and progress abundantly and vigorously in individuals and in the mass, that means in the mass of people, in the believer and in the whole church throughout the ages and the centuries, but only in its own kind, that is, according to the same dogma, the same sense, the same acceptation." very important principle, that the dogmas cannot change in meaning. They are not subject to any evolution. It's a very important principle of the Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. So, 29 is very short, so we'll skip 29. He talks in number 30 of the modernist as historian. He says their, first, their three first laws are contained in those three principles of their philosophy already dealt with the principle of agnosticism, the theorem of transfiguration of things by faith, and that other, which may be called the principle of disfiguration. So, let's review those. Agnosticism says that we cannot know God by our intelligence, that anything to to do with God is outside of the object of our intelligence. We cannot reason to his existence, we cannot reason to his nature. Uh, it, it just our intellects cannot know God. That reduces the faith to a religious sense or experience, a feeling. Right? That's agnosticism. And then transfiguration means that faith uplifts the the re- reality. You see, the so Christ is for them is an ordinary human being, but he was uplifted by the faith of his followers to be someone very special, finally God. See? Mm-hmm. And then disfiguration is that, well, when you compare the transfiguration to the historical reality, you see that he was disfigured, that he was that it really doesn't add up, that he was not truly God, he was just an ordinary human being like Buddha, who started a, a movement. See, that, that's that's modernist history. Uh, mm-hmm. So the church is not is not a, a sacred institution under the the guidance of Almighty God. It's this outgrowth of the religious conscience. The common church history taught up to now has a lot of disfiguration in it. You know the lives of the saints and the uh, miracles and all of that. Well, you know it, it, 
this, these are, this is a product of people's imaginations because they were so happy about uh, the uh, you know the, the saint or that saint or, or the you know the everything supernatural gets the axe. Everything mm-hmm. supernatural gets the axe in principle. Now you know that is not to say that there could be those, those things occasionally. You know where. People might embroider this or that or the other thing. That's not to exclude that possibility that you might have a popular tradition that that you know it, it doesn't uh, doesn't conform to the to the reality. And, and the church is aware of that. And uh, the church has has pulled out of you know certain lives of the saints certain things that cannot be proven you know, and or, or or doubtful, but. The modernist idea is that everything is subject to that principle. Everything is disfigured. If it is supernatural, it is disfigured. It can't be true. So, you know, what's left that you have this, uh, you have absolutely no evidence of God. <laughs> it's just this, this natural organization like a nation or, or a corporation. And so, for example, they they talk about the uh, the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. Christ of history is the ordinary human being who had an extraordinary religious experience. The Christ of faith is is that he's the Son of God and that he performed all these miracles and so forth. The same is true of the sacraments of history and the sacraments of faith. The sacraments of history are just purely natural things that were cooked up by the apostles or or even the early Christians, they, they decided to have certain externals to excite the faith. And then later on, these were transformed into things that Christ established and, and uh, you know, as, as the uh, necessary means of salvation and that uh, a whole theology was built up as a result of this transformation that was done. So everything gets the axe, according to that. So, he says, it becomes necessary, therefore, to eliminate also the accretions which faith has added, to relegate them to faith itself and to the history of faith. So that means you get this, uh, like a dual personality in a Catholic, where, yeah, there's the world of faith. Uh, He says, uh, I think it's in this encyclical, these modernists can get up on Sunday and give the most edifying talk, a beautiful a uh, speech or, or a sermon about a saint or some, and then in the classroom during the during the week they deny everything because they're they're dual. If they're speaking according to faith, well then all of these things are true. If they're think if they're speaking according to history, they're all not true, and, and they don't see any problem with that because truth for them is a personally is a, is a completely personal thing. It's it's whatever is true for you. It has nothing to do with objective reality. Mm-hmm. That that's the the uh, how modernism treats church history. Thus, they will not allow that Christ ever uttered those things which do not seem to be within the capacity of the multitudes that listen to him. Do they think well, these are ignorant people? Christ could not have said these things because they would have been meaningless to these ignorant people. Therefore, we have to. We can't. We can't take this. We have to reject it as a, a third-century accretion or something like that. Oh, there's so many books written like that. They're just they're <clears> just <throat> skept- they're skeptics, aren't they? They're skeptical about everything. 
they just don't believe anything really. They're not skeptical, they're deniers. Uh, the agnostic in them denies everything supernatural. The mm-hmm. only world of the supernatural is faith, which is all based on, on a, just a, a personal experience and, and does not connect with the intellect, does not connect with reality. It's all interior. So uh, that's the way they, they address it. And that's, uh, no, they are faithless people. There's no Catholic faith in these people. There's no virtue of faith. They don't believe anything. The virtue of faith cannot tolerate this. The virtue of faith is a supernatural gift from God that has as its object divine revelation. It cannot tolerate this garbage. It, it revolts against this. <laughs> it, it, you know. So, no, they're totally faithless, these people. Uh, he, he finishes that paragraph by saying, in this way, absolutely a priori, and acting on philosophical principles, which they hold, but which they profess to ignore, they proclaim that Christ, according to what they call his real history, was not God and never did anything divine, and that as man he did and said only what they, judging from the time in which he lived, consider that he ought to have said or done. You see, so they set themselves up as judges 2,000 years later. They know Christ's psychology uh, 2,000 years later, you know, which is very experimental. Uh, and uh, they figure, well, you know, none of this could really have happened, and uh, we have to reduce him to someone uh, that is common to his age and... and uh, you know, fits into history very nicely, according to their principles. When I read those sentences, I um, I thought, well, this is this is way beyond vanity. It's way beyond pride. It's way beyond arrogance. It's it's correct me if I'm wrong, my lord, but for me, it's kind of verging on hatred of God. Uh, I think so. It's a contempt, certainly, for God. I think. At bottom, it's a lack of faith. These people don't have faith. They they are agnostics. They uh, there's no faith in them, but they want to transform the church according to their faithless uh, world. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's a bizarre thing. You know, why not just leave and and <laughs> go off and and die like an atheist? Uh, no, they, they have this this idea that the church needs to be transformed. It's certainly diabolical. I mean, where would they come up with that? If you were honest, you'd just say, well, I don't agree with what the Catholic Church has been taking off. But mm-hmm. they have this interior need, which I can only ascribe to the devil, of transforming the Catholic faith. Because the, the devil for 2,000 years has tried the external means of wrecking the church. Persecutions, heresies, you name it. You pick up a church history book and it's just loaded with problems. <laughs> People making trouble for the Catholic Church in one form or other. And that didn't work. Uh, so the the most efficacious thing that the devil could do is a transformation. Because you can destroy something either by killing it or by changing its nature, mm-hmm. uh, by by denaturing it or, or, or changing its essence. You can destroy it. 
and so the Catholic Church conceivably could be destroyed by changing its very essence, its invisible qualities, uh, keeping the same structures, but but uh, changing its invisible qualities, namely its faith, its its doctrines, everything that that we believe but cannot see, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that that has wrought more destruction than Henry VIII, than Martin Luther, than than Photius, and all of the heretics combined in the history of the Church, and all of the rotten kings and emperors who gave it all sorts of trouble from from the beginning. That has has uh, wrought more destruction in a in these fifty years, which is not a long, long time for the Church. It's just brought it to ruin, mm-hmm. incredible ruin, and it's certainly the the coup de grace of Satan. And I think these people probably not were conscious agents of Satan, but certainly unconscious agents of Satan. Right. Well, we would like to remind you that you are listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors, Pershendi Dominici Gregis Part 2 on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I am delighted to be joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing Pope's and Pius X's great encyclical, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, on the program of Modernists. We want to remind you that this Popes Against the Modern Era show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. So, my Lord, going on to paragraph 31, where Pope St. Pius X addresses criticism and its principles in the modernist system. Yes, a criticism means comparing texts, and usually biblical texts, to see if they are correct readings. In itself, there's nothing wrong with that, because there are many readings, because there are many copyists, and sometimes the copyists were, you know, not paying attention the way they should, or their handwriting was bad. Uh, Things, you know, uh, didn't get copied the way they ought to. So there is always a, a, uh, you know, St. Jerome did it. He had to compare many of the texts of the Hebrews and, and take the best reading. Uh, the translators of the Septuagint had to do it. So that there's nothing wrong with what textual criticism in itself, but the modernists, of course, make a mess of it. That's what he's talking about here. He expounds in 31 what he already said about, you know, that there's a Christ of history and then there's a Christ of belief. So he reiterates that. In 32 is the principles of criticism. Uh, he says, since the cause or condition of every vital emanation whatsoever is to be found in some need or want. It follows that no fact can be regarded as antecedent to the need which produced it. Historically, the fact must be posterior to the need. So I know that sounds a little complicated, but he's saying that you cannot have a a true religious experience unless it corresponds to some need in you. Therefore, anything at all in history or in the sacred scripture which does not correspond to the typical needs of the times must be eliminated. It cannot <laughs> fit. You see? That, that's well, that's just, what their criticism is. So, 
Well, St. St. Paul's conversion springs to mind immediately. St. Paul didn't have any need to be struck off his donkey on the way to Damascus. He wanted to go and kill some Christians, not be converted. Yes. 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 (laughs) Uh, uh, No, I mean, they they sit in judgment of all of these things, you know, 2,000 years later. And don't forget, too, that they are living in an age which is... uh, very, very pleased with itself. This is the late 1890s, early 1900s, when all sorts of inventions are are being made, all sorts of discoveries in all the sciences, engineering, medicine, biology, uh, radiology, the, the radio itself, the, the motor car, all of these things are being invented. So their lives have changed. I mean, if you were born in 1850 and and arrived in 1900, say, you you know, so many things changed. Electri- electricity, uh, photography, even movies. I mean, I think the first movie was made in 19, uh, 1896. Uh, mm-hmm. Recordings, many, many things. There was even a recording of Leo the Thirteenth, a uh, very early recording. So they're all puffed up with the idea that we have arrived at super knowledge. You know, so... We open these books now with all of this knowledge that we have, and we can pronounce on every single word. And again, you know, they're approaching with this uh, this idea of religion that it proceeds from some interior need. So any religious thought, any religious fact, has to be subject to that to that principle. So he says the critic takes in hand the documents dealing with the history of faith and distributes them period by period so that they correspond exactly with the list of needs, always guided by the principle that the narration must follow the facts and the facts follow the needs. It may at times happen that some parts of sacred scriptures, such as the epistles, themselves constitute the fact created by the need. Even so, the rule holds that the age of any document can only be determined by the age in which each need is, has manifested itself in the church. So, for example, the modernists hold, uh, and at the time it was Harnack and various others, he was a Protestant, but he was a modernist, uh, that, you know, that the early Christian community uh, uh, wrote down the Gospels in the 3rd century, in the 200s, and that, you know, these, these are not the, the, the writings of these people that they claim, that, because the needs were far greater, are far greater in the Gospels than, the, than they could be at the, at the 1st century A.D., so it took 200 years to, for these needs to, to develop and evolve, and finally they wrote down these Gospels, divinizing Christ and making up all these miracles that he did. That, that is the common thing that is taught today. I don't think that this is something that, that was wiped away by pious intent. That's what you commonly hear. So if we go to 33, then uh, he talks about modernist confusion, how, how they essentially contradict themselves. He says, from the beginning to end, everything in it is a priori, and an a priori-ism that reeks of heresy, a very important point. A priori for the, the layperson, let me explain that. That means to approach something with a prejudice. The a priori means from before in Latin, from before. So if you go in with the idea that, well, no supernatural event can be true, it had to be made up by somebody, that's an a priori. So you go into the Gospels with this a priori, and you start 
slicing away everything that, that it doesn't fit in your opinion. And he says it's an a prioriism. That means it's a prejudice, essentially, that reeks of heresy. That that they know that they are destroying the sources of revelation, but they don't care. It's a very important point. Their whole attitude is heretical. That's the essential point of that paragraph 33. Mm-hmm. And then 34, he talks about the modernist treatment of the Bible. He says, the modernists have no hesitation in affirming generally that these books, and especially the Pentateuch and the first three Gospels, have been gradually formed by a primitive, brief narration, by additions, by interpolations of theological or allegorical interpretations, or parts introduced only for the purpose of joining different passages together. So it's a quilt of things that may have been said or written down in the first century and things that may have been added later, and then somebody took it all together and put it in one big book and and called it St. Matthew's Gospel. And uh, that's that's the common teaching today. I mean, (laughs) if you go to universities or seminaries, that's what they'll tell you, that... that, uh, uh, that these are products of, of a much later age. But they assume um, that they assume that because it fits their system. There, there's they, again, it's a priori. It it fits their system for that to be the case. Therefore, it must be true. Yes, yes. They go into the whole thing with this a priori, this prejudice, this prejudgment. That's what prejudice means. This prejudgment that this is the the framework in which all things. Uh, must fit, and so they push and shove and, and until it fits, and uh, uh, and the, their attitude is heretical. That's uh, uh, you know this very framework that they want to fit everything into is heretical because it reeks of heresy. Mm-hmm. He says the Pope says to aid them in this, they call to their assistance that branch of criticism which they call textual and labor to show that such a fact or such a phrase is not in its right place, adducing other arguments of the same kind. See, so if, for example, the, uh, in Isaiah, it talks of Cyrus, who is actually a future a Persian uh, emperor, or whatever he was, uh, and, uh, well, that can't be, because that would be a prophecy. So this must have been written after Cyrus. Uh, and, and anything else which, you know, of course, anything else which indicates prophecy has to be debunked as, as you know, it doesn't fit. It was added later. Uh, and uh, like, for example, our Lord's prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. Oh, well, you know, that that can't be. That, that shows that the Gospels were written well after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, there was a book written a number of years ago showing how St. Matthew's Gospel, which contains that, uh, was written in uh, around the 60s AD, and um, that's, of course, before the destruction of Jerusalem. But th- that's a, a typical example. Uh, you know, oh, you know, oh, this is impossible. Because they, they cannot admit the idea of prophecy, that, that God could reveal to someone something that will happen in the future. They cannot admit that. It, it, it's impossible, because fundamentally they don't believe in God. 
if you believe in God, that's not a problem for you. You could say, of course he could tell somebody. He can do whatever he wants. But if you don't believe in God, that's a big problem. <laughs> How do we explain this? You know, well, they made it up. That's known as yeah, textual criticism. He says, to hear them descant of their works on, sacred, on the sacred books, in which they have been able to discover so much that is defective, one would imagine that before them, nobody ever turned over the pages of sacred scripture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, all of, nobody found these problems. St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, all of these great scripture scholars, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Basil, St. Gregory Nazienz, and St. John Chrysostom. No, they were all nincompoops and bimbos. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 uh, and but two thousand years later we finally have uh, uh, discovered this. Uh, the Pope says the truth is that a whole multitude of doctors, far superior to them in genius, in erudition, in sanctity, have sifted the sacred books in every way, and so far from finding in them anything blameworthy have thanked God more and more heartily, the more deeply they have gone into them for his divine bounty in having vouchsafed to speak thus to men. And then he gets sarcastic. Unfortunately, these great doctors did not enjoy the same aids to study that are possessed by the modernists, for they did not have for their rule and guide a philosophy borrowed from the negation of God and a criterion which consists of themselves. <laughs> Boy, is that a scathing sarcasm. Uh, but very true. Very, very true. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, the, these people coming along after so many years <laughs> discovering this stuff uh, is, is, is you know, absurd and, and pitiful. Mm-hmm. He goes on, and this is the same paragraph 34 that we were in. He says, you know, we have clearly uh, indicated the historical method of the modernists. He says that their, their principles consist of agnostic, immanentist, and evolutionist criticism. That's very important. So, again, he, you know, he's always hitting on their fundamental principles, agnosticism, that we cannot know anything about God with our intellect. Immanentism, what we know about God is only a feeling that comes from within us. And evolutionism, that is, the, uh, our religious feelings are constantly subject to change. And everything with it, including the church and dogma and liturgy, everything else. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's saying that these are you know, always present. He says, this being so, it is much a matter for surprise that it should have found acceptance to such an extent among certain Catholics, this criticism. Two causes may be assigned for this, he says. First, the close alliance which the historians and critics of this school have formed among themselves, independent of all differences of nationality or religion. See, so all of these people were usually in universities. They all knew all the European languages. They're talking to each other in these reviews. They're patting each other on the back. They're going to uh, conferences, and, and they all know each other. And there's, you know, Protestants and Catholics alike. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. Second, their boundless effrontery by which 
If one then makes any utterance, the others applaud him in chorus, proclaiming that science has made another step forward, while if an outsider should desire to inspect the new discovery for himself, they form a coalition against him. So these modernists would applaud each other, something like the Academy Awards, you know, oh, you, you've destroyed this dogma, and then they get a golden statue. <laughs> and, and, uh, and if anyone should criticize them, they, they, they join ranks and, you know, they, they solidify and, and, and uh, hail down all sorts of criticism upon those who would attack them as being stupid or uneducated or something like that, being a dinosaur or whatever. I was just going to say, my lord, I don't know if you've ever seen the phrase in the states, but in the in England we call it the lovies. It's the the lovies, you know, lo- lovey lovey darling. Uh, so the, all the mm-hmm. lesbians get together and say, oh, lovey darling, and you know they're all <laughs> a, as as one. But uh, yeah, criticize criticize no, them, they'll all turn on you. Oh, well, in England we call them the lovies. <laughs> <laughs> That's generally true of the academic world. You know, they they all know each other, and they they publish. They they say, "Oh, I loved your book," and "Oh, I loved your book." And there is a vanity, an incredible vanity, that operates in them. Uh, that they they all respect each other and are all uh, equally liberal. Unless uh, uh, you know, no one can disagree; otherwise, they are an outcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true, generally, of the academic world, mm-hmm. which is not very academic at all. <laughs> then we get into paragraph. Well, you know, academics should be completely objective, and it shouldn't matter who thinks what. But unfortunately, vanity uh, is, is a very strong force, especially in men. What you know, as opposed to women, uh, you know, men are very conscious of thinking and believing what other men think. Women less so. Uh, but right. but men are are attracted by a vanity of of thought. Okay. We're on thirty five now, uh, and, and this is the modernist as apologist. Now, what does that mean? Apologetics, in the Catholic sense, is the science of pointing out to someone through very objective external arguments that the Catholic faith is the one true faith outside of which there is no salvation, that it is the one Christian church that Christ founded, and that if you hope for salvation, you better join it. Uh, That's known as apologetics, and the church, ever since, uh, I would say, the Protestant Reformation has engaged in this science of proving the, um, the... might say divinity of the Catholic Church, the divine origin and qualities of the Catholic Church. Uh, Bossuet was very, uh, very influential in that. Uh, you know, uh, Saint Francis de Sales and others are making arguments against the Protestants who were constantly ripping against the Church. So as time went on, uh, and especially in the 18th century, when Kant and others were the rationalists, Voltaire uh, were were absolutely destroying not only uh, the church, but also belief in God uh, himself uh, or itself, uh, the uh, meaning belief, you know, became more and more necessary to respond to these people. And and the 19th century was was yet another greater onslaught. And so this science became very perfected by the early part of the 20th century. 
And so that's the science of apologetics. Uh, apologetics means defense. Apologia, or gia, apologia in Greek, means defense. How it evolved into apologizing in the English sen- sense of saying you're sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems the almost opposite of its original meaning. But uh, apologetics is to, is to defend the Catholic faith as it is the one true faith. And as I said, in the Catholic uh, uh, presentation of it, it's totally objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are your motives for credibility. This is why you should believe. Uh, and then you have a look at the life of Christ. You have a look at the teachings of Christ. <clears throat> you have a look at the life of the church. Um, and, it, you know, prophecies and miracles. All of the motives that, that make up the what we call the motives of credibility. It urges, the science urges the act of faith. You know, if you have the motives of credibility, then you should believe. You know, it's all very logical, as always. You know, the Catholic faith is always very clear. Well, the modernists cannot bear that. Uh, the modernist says, we, we can't know God. Uh, you know, logic and philosophy mean nothing. We can't, we can't know any of those things. There are no prophecies. Those are all made up. Those are all fairy tales. The miracles are all fairy tales. The the gospels are all fairy tales, you know, or, or <laughs> things that were written down, you know. So they, they they just eliminate everything. So what's left but the religious experience, you know, your needs. So so he says, the Pope says, the aim he, the modernist, sets before himself is to make one who is still without faith attain that experience of the Catholic religion which, according to the system, is the sole basis of faith. See, so you have to have an interior experience of faith in order to, uh, to be a Catholic. Now, this is Bergoglio. He says that his faith is an interior experience. It's, a, it's a, uh, an encounter with Jesus. He says that all the time. Now, needless to say... You know, that strips it of dogma, it strips it of anything objective, it's just an encounter with Jesus, that's my faith. And so he's a perfect modernist in that sense. They they show that the Catholic religion uh, is endowed with such vitality as to compel every psychologist and historian of good faith to recognize that its history hides some element of the unknown. See, not that it is divinely founded but that there's something in it that we can't explain. And that something is this hidden God in humanity. You see, this, this whatever you want to call it, uh, this, this spark of, of something in human beings. And so he says, to this end, it is necessary to prove that the Catholic religion, as it exists today, is that which was founded by Jesus Christ, that is to say that it is nothing else than the progressive development of the germ which he brought into the world. So you're, you're going to show, the modernist is going to show, not that Christ founded a, an institutional church, oh goodness, no, but that he preached the gospel and therefore founded a movement, something like Buddha, and that this, what we call Catholicism in the Roman Catholic Church, is the authentic uh, heir to this movement that Christ founded. It, it, so that's the extent of it, that 
the, the religious experience that Catholics have are genuine and that they are in accordance with what the, the religious experience of Christ. Uh, he says, hence it is imperative, first of all, to establish what this germ was. And this the modernist claims to be able to do by the following formula. Christ announced the coming of the kingdom of God, which was to be realized within a brief lapse of time, and of which he was to become the Messiah, the divinely given founder and ruler. Then it must be shown how this germ, always imminent and permanent in the Catholic religion, has gone on slowly developing in the course of history adapting itself successively to the different circumstances through which it has passed. So it has, we, this is a, a genuine evolutionary process from an original germ, something like, you know, uh, human beings coming from monkeys. See that? We yeah. can show that the human being has come from a monkey, and so also that the Catholic Church has come from this original religious germ or, or seed uh, in Christ. Mm -hmm. This movement has overcome so many obstacles and you know, has such a wonderful history that it shows that there's something unknown in it. He says, the unknown rises forth from it and, pre and presents itself before us. So you should join this movement and have this experience, this Catholic experience, and you can feel genuine and one with Christ because you have this Catholic experience. That is the modernist apologetics. It is the Novus Ordo apologetics. You see, uh, uh, Bergoglio said, proselytism is, is all nonsense. Mm -hmm. Proselytism means traditional Catholic apologetics, showing that you should abandon your false religion and join the Catholic Church and repudiate your false religion and join the Catholic Church. Oh, that's awful. The, the, <laughs> uh, the, what, the, uh, what you're supposed to do is just show people your experience, and by your example and, and by the vitality of your experience, they will be attracted to, to Catholicism. Perhaps that's how apologetics or ap apologia became apologized in, in English, because... <laughs> Obviously, in, in in England, if you're going to tell somebody an uncomfortable truth, you would always apologise first and say, "I'm very sorry, but <laughs> I'm very sorry, but you're misinformed um, because of these objective facts." So perhaps that's how it came about. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, it's certainly it's certainly a very long way away from um, from well, well, yeah, the the two ideas, the the modernist and the traditional. Ideas of apologetics just seem to be completely poles apart, but then you would expect them to be. Yes, so that that's the modernist uh, methodology of apologetics. Uh, so uh, then we move on to uh, number 36, modernist confusion. They admit openly, the encyclical says, uh, and with ill-concealed satisfaction, that they have found that even its dogma, meaning the church's dogma, is not exempt from errors and contradictions. But for them, that's not a problem, because it's not a single unity of truth. It's an evolving thing. 
So you have some errors and contradictions. What we, what Trent says, is not what we would say today. It, it, it continues. In the sacred books, there are many passages referring to science or history where, according to them, manifest errors are to be found. So, oh, you know, accepting Genesis as historical would, would just be a, <laughs> this is something so unacceptable to them. Uh, <laughs> how can you accept that fairy tale as something historical? It's obviously an allegory. And, you know, it all happened for monkeys anyway, so, you know, we don't need to pay attention to it. It's just a way of, you know, speaking to a primitive people. That's typical of the modernists. He says, in them, history and science serve only as a species of covering to enable the religious and moral experiences wrapped up in them to penetrate more readily among the masses. So it would speak of, the cosmogony of the world or things that we might call scientific or historical only to uh, as, as a sort of framework in which to preach uh, some sort of moral or dogmatic idea to the to the ignorant people See, so you can't take any of that history or science seriously it could easily contradict the the truth uh, it's just uh, something that they made up in order to, as a vehicle, in order to teach the people. Mm -hmm. uh, just making up stories. It goes on. It says, now life has its own truths and its own logic. Very important point. See, they, they repudiate objective logic, objective truth. Uh, life has its, its logic. That is, what is true for me. Uh, what what means something to me that in such a way that I put it into effect? See, that's that's the 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 truth of life. That's the logic of life. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. he says it's quite different from rational truth and rational logic, belonging as they do to a different order, namely truth of adaptation and of proportion, both with what they call the medium in which it lives and with the end for which it lives. Finally, the modernists, losing all sense of control, go so far as to proclaim as true and legitimate whatever is explained by life. That's a very important point as well. See, in evolution, if something happens, then it's right and true. You know, if, if, the, if the frog becomes a prince, well, then that's right and true because there is a force pushing all of it that is really a, a type of divine force. It's a world spirit that is pushing evolution. So anything that happens is good and right, no matter what it is. See, that, that's very Hegelian. Um, and and yes, oh, yeah. so what, uh, whatever happens in life is right and true. So therefore, uh, people's beliefs are canonized by the fact that that they're there. <laughs> well, you know, we've arrived at it, and we think this now, and therefore they're uh, they're all right and true, provided, of course, they're liberal. <laughs> they came up with oh, yes. any idea. Of course. Yes, they have to be liberal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he goes on to say that uh, that the modernists say that the dogmas bristle with flagrant contradictions, 
But what does it matter since, apart from the fact that vital logic accepts them, they are not repugnant to symbolical truth? Vital logic means the logic of life. You know, mm-hmm. if they're true for us, if they mean something to us, well, who cares if, if they are repugnant to, you know, if they contradict each other? It doesn't matter if there's contradiction, because they mean something to us. Very, very prevalent idea in modernism and in Novus Ordoism, that uh, this is a new experience we have. This is life now. You know, they're not bothered by contradiction. If you say to a Novus Ordo, well, the Catholic Church taught in 1562 or something in the Council of Trent, this, well, so what? Yeah, it means absolutely nothing to them. (laughs) The, 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 The continuity of what he calls symbolical truth, that means logical truth the the the, uh, the that continuity is meaningless to them they don't care what the council of trent taught they don't care what the nicene uh, council taught or the nicene creed it it doesn't matter as long as what is happening now is true for me and corresponds to my life experience it's it's as important to them as paddington bear liking marmalade sandwiches they just don't care <laughs> That must be a, an English thing. <laughs> oh, do you not have Paddington there? Oh, it's a story. No, uh, no, you, you gave us an English example. <laughs> but don't forget, he, he, we're speaking he, to a very broad English-speaking world, so uh, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, he was. He was. I'm sure uh, I used some Americanisms on you. No, it's fine. I understand them. Um, we have no. There's a. It's just a story about a Chilean. Uh, he's a Chilean teddy bear who was found at Paddington Station. He didn't have a name. No, he's not. He's from Peru, actually. So he's from Peru, and uh, he didn't have a name. Um, and the family took him in and looked after him. Uh, it's just a story, a, a children's a children's fairy tale. And he li- and he liked oh. marmalade sandwiches. That was what he used to eat. His marmalade sandwiches. So it's that's his imp- So the point was that you know this sort of children's fairy tale about a, a mythical cuddly bear that was found at Paddington Station. They didn't know he didn't have a name, so they just called him Paddington because that's where they found him. And uh, that, that's that's worth as much to the modernists as what the Council of Trent taught. Yes. So he goes on uh, to continue there. He says, are we not dealing with the infinite and has not the infinite an infinite variety of aspects? And this is by attempt expressing the mind of the modernist. In short, to maintain and defend these theories, they do not hesitate to declare that the noblest homage that can be paid to the infinite is to make it the object of contradictory statements. That is Schelling, that the the infinite uh, it, it contains what is contradictory in this world, that it's all one in him. That was Schelling, the famous German evolutionist in the early part of the 19th century. And they have taken it that that all of these things are resolved in God. We don't need to worry about it. You know, that, that Trent contradicts Vatican II or, or, or you know, you're, you're all, you know, you're worked up about nothing. It's just what's true for, for now. Uh, contradiction is not a problem. You know, so we again appear you know, as dinosaurs worrying about contradiction. Uh, it's all one in God. There's no, there is no, there's no fear of the justice of God in in any of this, is there? No, no, because uh, 
you live life, you evolve, and that's God in you. And there's no idea uh, of an objective norm of morality. Uh, it's all God in you, and, and he's developing you, and he's developing in you, and so forth and whatnot. So getting back to uh, uh, apologetics, they endeavor, this is number 37, in mm-hmm. fact, to persuade their non-believer that down in the very depths of his nature and his life lie hidden the need and the desire for some religion, and that this uh, and this not a religion of any kind, but the specific religion known as Catholicism, which they say is absolutely postulated by the perfect development of life. So. This, again, uh, is seen in the Novus Order, where they say that the Catholic Church has the fullness. That's you know, so how they put this, that uh, all of these religions, Anglican, Lutheran, and so forth, uh, all have truth, they have value in the order of salvation, but they're imperfect, and the Catholic Church has the fullness. So the only thing that distinguishes these Christian sects is that one has the fullness and the other just has, you know, a piece of the pie or a few pieces of the pie, as the case may be. That's the, you know, how they try to, to draw people to the Catholic Church. Today, they wouldn't even try. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. But yeah. at that time, there was still some idea of becoming a Catholic. <laughs> uh, he says, such venerable brethren is a summary description of the apologetic method of the modernists in perfect harmony with their doctrines, methods and doctrines replete with errors made not for the edification, but for destruction, not for the making of Catholics, but for the seduction of those who are Catholics into heresy and tending to the utter subversion of all religion. Those are very strong words and ringing true as we speak. Mm-hmm. The yeah, utter absolutely. subversion of all religion and the seduction of those who are Catholics into heresy. Very, very poignant and moving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, now number 38, the modernist as reformer. So now he's going to show how they, they want to reform everything in the church. He says in this paragraph, in all Catholicism, there is absolutely nothing on which it, meaning their, their reformist idea, does not fasten. Everything gets affected. There's not a single stone unturned. And that's what we've seen since Vatican II. Nothing is the same. There's not a single thing. Nice. Uh, it, it all was, was completely uh, changed. They wish this scholastic philosophy to be relegated to the history of philosophy and to be classed among absolute systems the young men to be taught modern philosophy, which alone is true and suited to the times in which we live. So they have a hatred of St. Thomas Aquinas, a hatred of all of the church's traditional scholastic theology, which was perfectly logical and clear. Uh, It was a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. They hate it. The reason why they hate it is that it is so objective and that they cannot get around it. They cannot have their modernist system in it. They cannot use it because it is totally objective. Rather, they want the students to learn 
Immanuel Kant. And this is, again, what happens in seminaries. You go to the modernist seminary today, and sure, they teach you Thomas Aquinas. They teach you a history of philosophy, and they spend maybe a week or two on St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, you were in the seminary. You know how long we spent on the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, yes, I do. it's very deep and and complicated, difficult, and, and requires, you know, a great deal of attention and work. As I remember, my lord, you wouldn't let us go anywhere near it without getting our logic straightened out first. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, philosophy is, is like pouring the foundation of a building now. It's very, very important, and that's why we, it was always taught in seminaries. And we've actually added on a year since you've been here. You know. But the hatred of scholastic philosophy is, is rule number one. And replacing it with Kantian 18th century relativistic uh, philosophy. Uh, it says that they desire the reform of theology, rational theology, meaning St. Thomas, is to have modern philosophy uh, as its foundation and uh, and so that means you have to teach everything with the principles of relativity of truth uh, and interior experience and that there's no objective truth. And positive theology is to be founded on the history of dogma. Positive theology means the collecting the ideas of the fathers, uh, studying the fathers and seeing what they said about various dogmas. That's known as positive theology. And that has to be founded on the history of dogma. History of dogma means how the dogma evolved, just like how a human being evolved from a monkey. How did we come up with transubstantiation? Well, you know, you had all these historical circumstances and this and that. that that's history of dogma, and the, the modernists were very high on what is known as history of dogma. Mm-hmm. He says... Dogmas and their evolution, they affirm, are to be harmonized with science and history. See, so just as sacred scripture has to be harmonized with science and history, so dogmas and their gradual development have to be harmonized with science and history. So therefore, there's a historical context to dogma, which affects the dogma. You see, people may have been upset about this or that, so then they made this dogma. <laughs> then... But you, you have to, you know, well, now we're not so upset about it, so it doesn't apply anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding worship, they say the number of external devotions is to be reduced and steps must be taken to prevent their further increase. All right, so we've seen that, the, you know, calling for a simplification of the rites. And, you know, the, the whole. Uh, <clears throat> they insist that both outwardly and inwardly it, meaning the uh, ecclesiastical government, must be brought into harmony with the modern conscience, which now wholly tends toward democracy. A share in ecclesiastical government should therefore be given to the lower ranks of the clergy and even to the laity, and authority, which is too much concentrated, should be decentralized. So in short, they, they want to democratize the Catholic Church. You know, it's ecclesiality and, and what we, you know, synod and all that stuff. Um, and um, they ask the clergy to return to their primitive humility and poverty, and that in their ideas and action they should admit the principles of modernism, well, of course. You know. uh, so, again, the stripping of the clergy of any sort of prominence. So, 
well, you get the the Father Bob, you know, the the priest in the uh, the sweatshirt and the shorts, you know, and they come up to us all the time and you know ask who we are, you know, and you bishop and you know, and you know I, I'm Father Bob uh, and you know. <laughs> You meet them in airports, and you know, and you know, what do you say? Yeah. <laughs> They're a wreck. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they just look like slobs, and and <laughs> you know, you almost pity them. And usually, two of them, and you pity them. It's like, you know, look at you. You feel like saying that. Once I did. Once I did. Uh, I was in a restaurant and this, this redemptorist came over from the bar. He was sitting at the bar and he was in the typical outfit. You know, he was in his cups. As I think that's my grandfather used to say that. It was from Belfast. I think that's an Irish expression, to be in your I cups. So. And, and, and uh, so I let him have it. I said, St. Alphonsus would be ashamed of you. You should be in your redemptorist habit. You should be in a, mon- in a, in a monastery. Uh, here you are, you know, uh, in your cups in, in, at a bar. Uh, the, the bar was over, you know, in a different part of the restaurant. I was not in the bar. Uh, but he comes up to me and, and, and tells me about himself and all. And, and so I just let him have it. Usually I don't, but I was disgusted at that point. And, yeah. um, but I, I usually just pity them. I mean, what, what kind of, you know, they, they're just useless meaningless people or something you know in a way i feel sorry for them they're, they're really victims and when you think of the glory of the priesthood and what the priest should be uh mm-hmm. according to all you know saint joseph Cafasso and all of the great writers concerning the priesthood it's such an exalted thing and the modernists have turned the, the priest into to just a, a ragamuffin uh, is that you don't do you understand that word do you say that word yes you know? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah just uh you know uh not even, you know, he doesn't even have externals uh, of respect. You know, nothing is left. And uh, he says they call for the suppression of the celibacy of the clergy, which, by the way, we talked about uh, recently in a show on Francis Watch, that this is the next thing coming up, is doing away with celibacy. And then he says, St. Pius X says, what is there left in the church which is not to be reformed by them according to their principles? That rhetorical question, which is a ring so true today, the whole thing has been blown up like Hiroshima. Because mm-hmm. the, so, the faith is an integrated whole. You can't attack a part of it without attacking all of it. So you have to destroy all of it. No. Yes, but this is a particularly bad germ. I mean, it gets into everything. It's not an isolated heresy, or it's not like the the, the Phocians who rejected the papal authority. It, it, it just it's it's like a, a virus that gets into you, all of your documents and destroys all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good um, <clears throat> good analogy to it. it. It just has the the possibility of destroying everything in the Catholic faith, and indeed it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just has wreaked havoc. Okay, I think that's a good place to cut this show off, then, my lord. Um, Next show, we will continue to follow St. Pius X as he discusses the causes and remedies of modernism, and we will then ask your Lordship to provide your summarizing and closing comments on this most important encyclical. Are there any uh, summarizing or closing comments on this particular issue, or would you like to leave it to, to the next episode? 
I'll leave it till the next episode because it, it is a, a whole. It is something that you have to review. It's so much. I just would like to summarize the whole cyclical in a way. Okay. Well, thank, thank you very much. As we close out this episode, we have covered paragraphs 20 to 38 of Pashendi Dominici Gregis of Pope St. Pius X. And I want to thank you, Lordship, for your time in being with us on this episode. I was glad to be here. Well, once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next month as we continue the series. God bless you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you have any questions for His Lordship or feedback on this episode, please contact us at moderneras at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Lordship. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.